Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What is up, you guys? Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. We made it to 2021. Woohoo! Happy New Year. How exciting is that? Many of us thought 2020 was never going to end, but it did. It's 2021, and I am super excited about our 30-day animal-based reset at Heart and Soil. Go to animalbased30.com to join us. There are tons of resources that I worked hard on to develop for you guys. There's a unique, very valuable animal-based infographic that you'll get by signing up, and you'll join all of us, including Joe Rogan, who's doing a carnivore diet this month. In our animal-based adventures over the course of January, we will crush it. We will be healthier and happier. And I'm super stoked to help you guys get more organs in your diet through Heart and Soil as well. You can check us out at heartandsoil.co. A huge part of an animal-based diet is eating nose to tail, getting well-raised meat, but also the organs with all the unique nutrients there. You guys know this is what I'm passionate about. That's why I built Heart and Soil. And this week, I've been thinking a lot about two of our supplements, specifically gut and digestion and immunomilk, because this week's conversation is with Lucy Mailing, and we talked all about the gut. And as I'm thinking about the Animal Base 30, I am getting a lot of questions about things like blackberries or uh, dates, and don't they have oxalates? And really, so many of these toxins, well, especially oxalates, have to do with the integrity of your gut lining. And if your gut lining is not healthy, probably because you're eating other more toxic parts of plants with lectins or toxic seed oils or have dysbiosis due to uh, overzealous use of antibiotics, et cetera. If your gut epithelium is not healthy, then it appears more likely that you will absorb more oxalates and they can be a real problem. But many of us can tolerate a moderate or a small amount of oxalates in a couple of dates or a cucumber or something just fine, but it all comes down to gut health. And how do you get gut health? You remove the toxic things and you give your body the nutrients it needs to build a healthy gut. What could be better for that than actually eating the stomach and the intestine? But many of us don't want to do that, which is why we put them in gut and digestion. And immunomilk has a ton of immunoglobulins as well as proline-rich peptides, lactoferrin, and hepatocyte growth factors, which are known to aid in the healing of the gut. And there's even been some studies suggesting that they are as effective as a flu vaccination in preventing the flu. So check us out, heartandsoil.co. This is an amazing episode with Lucy Mailing. She is returning to the show this time for the second time. We had another amazing, awesome, radical conversation, which I will link in the show notes to part one. But we asked the question, do you need fiber for a healthy gut? Can you eat an animal-based diet for a healthy gut? Can you be ketogenic for a healthy gut? What is a healthy gut? What is a healthy gut microbiome? How do you rehabilitate it? What nutrients do you need? This is a really cool podcast with Lucy. She brought a lot of new data to the table. You're going to be amazed. Guess what? The mucus layer of the gut does not get degraded without fiber as long as you eat an animal-based diet, as you will hear in this podcast with the amazing Lucy Mailing. Check her out. Also want to tell you guys about my sponsors. Thank you to my sponsors. I cannot think of anything that is more important than my sleep, and so I am so stoked about my new mattress. I just got one from Helix from Helix Sleep. It's so cool because whenever I travel, I sink in these saggy mattresses that stink because they're not built for me. 
And Helix had the brilliant idea, which is probably why their name is Helix, like DNA, that they would have a quiz and they would try and fit a mattress to you. And so I went to the website, I took the quiz, they ask you your height, your weight, are you men, are you woman? Uh, do you sleep on your stomach, your side or your back? Do you like a mattress firm, soft or medium? Do you have back pain? And they'll give you a recommendation based on their whole line of mattresses. I got recommended the Dawn mattress and elected for the Dawn Lux, which is freaking amazing. It's gotta be one of the best mattresses, if not the best mattress I've ever slept on. Check this out, you guys. You will not be disappointed. The quiz takes two minutes and they will match you with a unique mattress. So it's really, really cool. Um, not surprising they were awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. So go to helixsleep.com slash carnivoremd. That's me. Take the quiz. They'll match you with a customized mattress and they guarantee that you'll get the best sleep of your life. Um, I think I can vouch for that. So you also get a 10-year warranty. Try it out for 100 nights. They'll pick it up for you if you don't love it. It's so easy. Check them out. They're offering up to $200 off all mattresses and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com front slash carnivoremd. Throw away your saggy mattress. Get rid of that mattress that's not built for you and get a mattress that's actually going to help you sleep better. You will thank me. Trust me. Sleep is critical. You know what else is critical? Your testosterone and your hormones and the quality of your immune system and your HSCRP. Do you know what those labs are? No, you don't, because you didn't get your labs done. But that's where Let's Get Check comes in. This is why I like these guys. You can do it from home, and you can get your blood work done at home. You don't even have to go to a doctor. Yeah, I'm serious. You can go to Let's Get Checked. It's trylgc.com, front slash carnivoremd, and you'll get 20% off by using that code, and you can get your labs checked at home. Choose your test online. They've got all kinds, way more than testosterone, but a full hormone panel. It'll be delivered to you, discreet packaging, next day delivery, activate your test, take your blood like a vampire, but it's not that bad. It's real easy. It's pretty painless. Send it back to them. In two to five days, you get your results. A nurse will review it. A physician will review it. A nurse will call you to talk about it. All the Let's Get Checked laboratories are CLIA approved, the highest level ranking accommodation, accreditation. They'll let you know what's going on inside and you can take a scientific approach to improving your life. It's not just for men and women who think they're in a funk. We should probably all know these things. You might want to check your fasting insulin too and an HSCRP. So go at 20% off at trylgc.com front slash carnivoremd. That's the code carnivoremd, trylgc.com. C-A-R-N-I-V-O-R-E-M-D. Get tested. You won't regret this. Know what is going on. This podcast is sponsored by Let's Get Checked. Appreciate these guys. Also sponsored by WhiteOakPastures.com, my friends in Georgia, making what I believe is some of the darn best regeneratively raised meat on the planet. Grass-fed, grass-finished, beef, lamb. They got turkeys. <laughs> they got chickens. They got guineas. They've even got soy and corn-free chickens. They've got organs. They got suet. They got all kinds of amazing stuff. Check them out at White Oak Pastures. These are really the originators. Will Harris is the hero, the real hero in the story of regenerative agriculture, and I love these guys dearly. Use Carnivore MD for 10% off at whiteoakpastures.com. And last but never least, I want to give a shout out to my friends at bellcampo.com. They sent me some bavette steaks. Oh my goodness, you guys, so good. I love flank steaks and bavette steaks right now. 
They're amazing, they're lean, and they are so flavorful. And you can get organic, grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised, bavette, flank steaks, ribeyes, New York's, suet, liver, heart, bellcampo.com. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD for 20% off your order or CARNIVORE10 if they are doing another order promotion and you'll get 30% off your order. Check them out. They're doing great work in the space. So any farm that does regenerative agriculture, I believe in greatly. If you are in Austin, check out Shirt Tail Creek as well. All right, guys, on to the podcast. Love you all. Listen after for what is going on with me and the winner of this week's reviews. If you guys leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, I will select a weekly winner, excuse me, a monthly winner, and send you a signed copy of my book. This week's winner will be announced after the podcast. Listen in the outro. Thank you for leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how we spread the word. Lucy, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I'm excited about this one because I've been deep in the lipid rabbit holes, and this will be a fun excursion for me into the wild lands of the gut microbiome again. Certainly, these are conversations that are relevant to everyone's health because, as most of my listeners will know, certainly the gut and the microbiome are also super hot topics and are central to overall health and everything that makes life worth living. So this will be good. I want everyone to know that you and I have had a previous conversation on the podcast. They can find all of those at hardensoil.co. We're going to go into a whole bunch of new material and maybe recap some of that other stuff today. But the combination of these two, I hope will serve as a really good resource for people in terms of the microbiome, GI health, the GI epithelium, how to rehabilitate the gut, certain diets and their effects on the gut, et cetera. So I think that one question that I'd like to start with is from your perspective, how do we know, or just what is a healthy gut microbiome? Yeah, that's a million dollar question, right? Um, I mean, the truth is we, we don't know exactly what a healthy microbiome is. So on average, we share about a third of our microbes with another person, but two thirds is pretty unique to us. So there's a lot of variation between people and even some variation over time. And so there is, you know, the human microbiome project, basically the whole goal of that was to try and establish what is a healthy microbiome. And after lots and lots of money put into that, unfortunately, they, they learned a lot and, you know, created these massive databases of microbes that we now can learn from, but they weren't able to really identify any core healthy microbiome. And interestingly, if there is a core, if there is a healthy core, it seems to be at the level of microbial functions, not at microbial species. And I think we touched on this a little the last time we talked. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? So this is I think of this in terms of maybe ecological niches in the mm -hmm. gut, but I just want to make sure that I'm thinking about it correctly. Yeah, absolutely. So um, ecological niches in terms of um, what substrates microbes consume. So um, you and I might each have a different microbe that fulfills the same function, essentially. So what you're saying is there is no one healthy gut microbiome, right? Correct. Okay. Because this is an important point that often gets really parroted in, in the nutrition community. And I feel like there is this underlying ideology that is a little bit insidious that if, if you don't have 
X amount of lactobacillus, or if you don't have X amount of bifidobacteria, or if you have more ruminococcus, or if you have more bilophila, or if you have more other bile tolerant organisms, that you have an unhealthy gut. And I just think, do we really know enough to say that? And there are a number of studies I think that I'll, that we can talk about now uh, that, that kind of ask that question. But I, thinking about the gut microbiome in terms of ecological niches and in terms of substrates made things a little more clear for me thinking, oh, it's not some, we really don't know enough in 2020 as we move into 2021 to be able to say you need this amount of this microbe in your gut. And I think of the gut microbiome as this web of interconnected organisms and certain organisms can occupy different nodes of that web interchangeably. And, and we may, we were just, we're just not smart enough to do that. And the thing that I think of are a number of studies, some of which were things that you pointed out to me looking at indigenous hunter gatherers, like the Hadza. Can you tell us a little bit about your perspective on the Hadza microbiome? And we can talk about some of the studies and what has been found when people look at this almost entirely free living population of hunter gatherers in Tanzania. Yeah. I mean, they have a, a very different gut microbiome. Um, they tend to have higher proteobacteria. They have the presence of spirochetes like treponema, which we typically don't see in, in Western context. Um, they have a complete absence of bifidobacteria, which we kind of consider as a keystone beneficial species in the West, um, although that's certainly controversial. Um, and we can maybe get into that later. But uh, yeah, I mean, their their microbiome is, is, is very different. And they, you know, it's geography. It's the fact that they're living a very different lifestyle. And uh, it certainly provides a lot of interesting data points to kind of compare between uh, the Hadza and Western populations. And we'll probably talk about an article. In fact, I, I hope we talk about an article later looking at the the alpha diversity, which is one of the metrics that we can use to look at the microbiome and comparing the alpha diversity of an urban population in Italy to a westernized population in Italy, or excuse me, to sort of a, a paleolithic diet eating population in Italy to a Mediterranean diet population in Italy. And then further, they, these researchers actually compared those populations to, to indigenous people, the Inuit, the Hadza. So we'll get to that, but there were some striking findings there. But yeah, if we look at papers like I, pulled this one up in preparation. Um, this one is particularly interesting. I'm sure you've seen this one. Uh, again, all of these will be in the show notes, guys. All the show notes are at hardensoil.co. And as you're saying, I mean, it just in the abstract, compared to Italians, the Hadza and Terracite-associated microbiome was characterized by a greater amount of adhesive organisms with pathogenic potential. So again, they're already kind of coloring this, right? Such as proteobacteria, which is a sort of a broad characterization of bacteria. Um, man, this is just like last time we talked, Lucy. I don't know how to pronounce all these. <laughs> I don't either. I spend all my time reading the literature. So I just <laughs> make yeah. up a pronunciation in my head. And, uh, <laughs> you know, then I go to conferences and I realize I'm pronouncing them all wrong. In, your, but, in my mind, I think this is the same. Yeah. That, that's exactly what happened last time we talked. Erysipelo trichiaceae, Enterococcus clostridium, and Sarcinia. And I just... I just want to point out that the proteobacter, as you say, is an organism that in my other conversations with colleagues and people who are interested in the gut, if they see someone with a high amount of proteobacter or proteobacteria, they'll often say that's not a good thing. But here are the Hadza, which don't 
clinically appear to have a large amount of inflammatory bowel disease or inflammation in the gut and are not eating any processed Western foods and they just have more proteobacteria. And so I, I think that, would you agree that this kind of highlights the fact that we, it's really too soon, or I would say too, uh, it's too, it's too much of a broad strokes characterization. It's an inaccurate characterization to say that all proteobacteria species are bad and that, that we really can't do that. Can we? So yes, I will say I have looked at that study. It's a little bit reductionist because they're basically putting fecal slurries in with an epithelial cell um, in vitro and seeing what binds. So it's not, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily really reflective. Um, but I, I mean, the Hadza do, um, I've looked at metagenomic studies, they do have around 6% proteobacteria, which is a little bit higher than um, healthy people in a Western context, typically. Um, it's primarily succinavibrio and ruminobacter, which are both um, obligate anaerobes that break down starch um, in the Hadza and are, are rarely, those two are rarely pathogenic in humans. I will say, um, in contrast, in a Western context, high proteobacteria is usually a family called Enterobacteriaceae, which are facultative anaerobes, meaning they can use oxygen to basically outcompete other microbes and are generally more pro-inflammatory. Um, that's not to say you couldn't potentially have higher proteobacteria and have full health. Um, but I think it's also important to consider that the Hadza have a completely different immune context. And so they're often exposed to these proteobacteria and uh, spirochetes and other, you know, helminths and other things in the environment from a very young age, which may reduce their aberrant immune responses later on. So I certainly think it's interesting and definitely highlights that we have, have more to learn there. Um, but I do think generally um, proteobacteria in a Western context do tend to correlate with inflammation. And is that, it sounds like that's because there are different species of proteobacteria that are usually showing up in Westerners versus um, the Hadza. Correct. So it's, it's often when we have an inflamed gut in a Western context, uh, I think we've touched on this last time, but you basically, in an inflamed gut situation, you get a little bit of oxygen leaking into the gut and the gut is supposed to be an anaerobic environment. So in the Hadza, their proteobacteria are more anaerobic, um, more obligate anaerobes that don't utilize oxygen. Whereas in a Western context, the high proteobacteria we're typically seeing are microbes that can use that oxygen and are typically seen in that more inflammatory context. Okay. So there's a little more nuance there. And this is stuff that's kind of confusing for me. So maybe this will be clarifying for the, the watcher of this, but I thought maybe we could go through this as well, that there, the proteobacteria is a phylum, right? Of bacteria. Mm -hmm. And that if, if people have taken biology in high school, they'll remember it's kingdom phylum class order, family, genus, species. I think I got that right. Mm -hmm. And so when you're talking about a kingdom and then a phylum, a phylum is a very large group. So if proteobacteria are a separate phylum, um, are then we, according to this one, are we then looking at like bacteroidetes, actinobacteria and firmicutes or firmicutes? These are all different phyla in the gut, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So this graphic that I'm showing, again, it'll be on YouTube or hard and soil. These are the major phyla, uh, in the, in the gut. And then we can go down and go kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. And so within any of these phyla are myriad other bacteria. 
Correct. And so you can see on here around the wheel are, these are all genus um, genera that fit into those respective phyla. Mm -hmm. And um, so for example, if you look under the proteobacteria, um, both Klebsiella and Escherichia are in that Anterobacteriaceae family that I just mentioned mm -hmm. um, within proteobacteria. Um, and those tend to be a little bit more um, inflammatory, at least in a Western context. And Klebsiella, people will know as usually the species is Klebsiella pneumoniae, but I guess there are other Klebsiella species. Escherichia can be E. coli, which has many different species that people think of as pathogenic. There's a lot of the enterotoxigenic E. coli species that can end up on vegetables or, or salads or even meat if it's improperly treated and that can cause bloody diarrhea and whatnot. You can get E. coli 0157H7, I think is the one or something like that, mm -hmm. which is in this phylum. And then we're looking at the genus, the genus here. And so here's Bilophila. We mentioned that one a little bit, um, a bile acid tolerant organism, right? Yep. yep. And then over here, you can see, what's that? We can talk. I think we have a study we can share about that one a little. Yeah, we too. should. Um, with TMAO, all of this foreshadowing. Um, and then you can see the firmicutes. I think I called them firmicutes. Well, well, I'm not sure. What have you heard this called at conferences? Both, honestly. <laughs> so just pick one. <laughs> okay. And then, you know, these are the, these are some of the ones we I've heard people mention, Roseburia, Blautia, Ruminococcus. Again, Clostridium is over here, Enterococcus, Lactobacillus, Streptococcus. These would be firmicutes. Bacteroidetes is another big phylum that people will hear about. And people sometimes talk about this Bacteroidetes to firmicutes ratio, you know, who knows? And then there's actinobacteria, which really on this one is just showing bifidobacteria. So I just wanted to show you all that we're talking, again, there are, there are these genus characterizations. There are phyla, phylum. Uh, individual phyla characterizations, and then it goes to certain species and they may all do different things and there may be contextual things. And it's probably also possible that there's an interaction effect of some of these bacteria as well. So it gets quite, quite complicated. And I think as we really, the takeaway from that, that I just wanted to try and highlight with you and confirm with you is that it's not always so much one species or another, and sometimes species are doing different things. There's one more study that I thought I would mention and see if you had Thoughts on this one? We're going to look at another study by the Sonnenbergs, at least one more in this podcast. But this one was interesting. They looked at the seasonal cycling of the gut microbiome in Hodza hunter gatherers. And, you know, I, I read it. And again, this isn't my area of expertise, but I thought it was interesting that, that later on in the paper, they talked about kind of this there are the wet season, there's a dry season. And at certain times of the year, they have more of these organisms that look, that, that look quote, pathogenic. But then again, mm -hmm the Hadza don't really have the pathology that we associate with that. Have you read, you've, I'm sure you're familiar with this study. Yeah. I think we, t I think we touched on it last podcast, if I remember right. Um, I mean, there's definitely a distinct shift that occurs with the, with the seasonal patterns, with the dietary patterns, um, their dietary availability changing. And I think this is, this is actually one of the arguments I made, I think last time we talked for metabolic flexibility of the gut microbiome and, um, I, I hope I convinced you at the time to maybe eat some berries or some, I, and now you're eating honey, right? I do eat honey. We can talk, we should definitely talk about honey. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, you know, and we'll, we'll touch on this more, but the, the gut microbiome really is flexible. And I think that's, that's shown in, in the Hadza. It's shown um, in humans being able to eat a wide variety of diets and, and thrive on those. And uh, yeah. So I, I think, um, the Hadza 
and that seasonal cycling is is really interesting and and potentially suggests that we shouldn't be eating the same thing every day all the time. We might want to have some seasonal cycling or that the gut is fairly malleable. Um, I just thought it was interesting to mention that they have these two distinct seasons, the wet season from November to April and the dry season from May to October. They say berry foraging and honey consumption are more frequent during the wet season, whereas hunting is most successful during the dry season. Uh, they, they say that fiber-rich tubers and baobab occurs year-round, and then they looked at the shift throughout those. But um, I just found it interesting that when I read the paper, I kind of got the sense that they were trying to paint the picture that, hey, when they're doing more, when they're doing more hunting, their gut starts to look more like a Western microbiome. And I thought, well, that's a little bit misleading because even in the dry season, when the Hadza are doing more hunting, they're not getting inflammatory bowel disease. You know, it's, they're not getting the things that we would associate with a Western microbiome. And I was like, what are you driving at here, Justin Sonnenberg? <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of bias in, in both nutritional science and also in microbiome studies. Actually, uh, Tommy Wood, uh, researcher named Jonathan Shaw and I are about to publish a paper, uh, basically a, a review, review paper, perspective paper, highlighting this pervasive bias in studies and um, why we need a more nuanced look at, at microbiome and, and gut health research, because it's, it's very clear that we've kind of had this pervading, pervasive focus on fiber. And that's not to say that some people might, do, might not do well with, with more fiber in their diet, but um, I think the, the goal of, of our paper and, you know, the goal of my work in, in looking at this has been to really kind of slash that dogma and just kind of recognize that there is a lot of, a lot of flexibility in what the microbiome can adapt to and that we need kind of a less, less pathogenic lens on a lot of, uh, these, these studies and, and, uh, fewer researchers looking at their results with that bias from the start. I love that because I see that everywhere, right? I mean, the kind of stuff that I'm thinking about spans a lot of different little, little turf battles in medicine. There's lipid battles and, and there's this huge bias in lipids. Everybody, everybody's seeing things through the lens of LDL being directly pathogenic to the endothelium. And there's going to be lots of podcasts coming on that in the future. And then in the gut world, it's really seen through the lens of you need more fiber to healthy, have a healthy gut microbiome and getting interested in carnivore and, and animal-based diets has kind of made me question that. And this is why it's so interesting to talk to you because there's so many pieces that we can kind of unearth and examine together that say, maybe we don't need all this fiber all the time to have a quote, healthy microbiome, or how do we define that? And, and that's a very interesting discussion, but it's so wild. It's so really surprising, but now not so surprising to see that every real, every little microcosm, every little silo within medicine has their bias. And they, there's a lot of confirmation bias within them. And you know, I have said so many times that in medical school, they always said 50% of what you learn here is going to be wrong in five years. And yet you get out of medical school and you challenge the status quo and people call you, you know, apostasy, you know, there's apostasy and you're a heretic. And how could you possibly challenge the, the notion? Everyone knows fiber is necessary for a healthy gut microbiome. Everyone knows that LDL causes atherosclerosis. And it happens in every single, you know, everyone knows meat causes cancer and will shorten your life. And it's just so funny to see that there's, there's these entrenched ideologies, there's these entrenched stories and, and trying to challenge them is really fun, but it's, it's, it's really hard. Yeah. I, well, I think you're doing a good job of pre presenting the, you know, the alternative view on that. So 
And but you make a great point. I'll look forward to this paper with Tommy Wood and and your other colleague, because it, it's such a big problem that that even though researchers are they're often describing experimental science, they can editorialize, mm-hmm. and they can paint the results of those apparent, you know, hopefully objective experiments in a certain light, and that that's just that's a bummer. Right. So yeah, well, one, I mean, yeah. part of it is that the journal wants the story, right? It, you're yeah. not gonna. It, it doesn't get accepted if there's no clear, coherent story to tell, and if it doesn't have implications for disease. So, I, I think th- those are, you know, factors that weigh in on on researchers, and it, it's unfortunate because I think it forces them into interpreting the data into a a story that may or may not be true. And to me, it seems that it's much more difficult to get published if the story that you're telling is different than the, than the story everybody wants to hear or the story everyone has accepted. I, I know that, that other colleagues of mine, Dave Feldman in the lipid world, you know, I, I would imagine in, in the GI world, it's the same. And certainly in the, in the cancer or longevity world, if, if you're trying to tell a story that LDL might not be the cause of atherosclerosis de novo, or perhaps there's a little more nuance in the ketogenic and low fiber discussion around the gut microbiome, you're going against the status quo. And I would imagine that the journals don't always want that story in the journal. And do you think this, that's what it seems to me that it's very, it's a real uphill battle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely is. And a lot of it is even that the, you know, younger researchers, when they get into the field, they're reading review papers that are published by, you know, the leaders in the field who may, may have, you know, paradigms that they haven't changed in, in 20 or 30 years, even with new research coming out. And even some of the language we use, like a high fat diet for, for animal studies is, I mean, it's high in fat. It's, it's, and it's very high in sugar and it's, it, the fat sources aren't even quality either. So, um, yeah, so, you know, every nutritional science major learns, learns that a high fat diet is, you know, bad for you, but it's, it's not qualified. Exactly. It's very nonspecific and it, it's very misleading. And then it just gets parroted and it becomes part of the zeitgeist. And it's so hard to change that. The med- medicine and medical thinking is the Titanic and it is so hard to move the way people think and you get so much pushback. It's, it's really yeah. quite, it's really unfortunate, but it's why it's great. People like you are doing this stuff. Just one more I found on the gut microbiome of the Hodza hunter gatherers, because I love this stuff. <laughs> uh, you touched on this briefly that um, they compared uh, that the Hadza had higher levels. They compared them to rural farming groups in Africa. The higher the Hadza had higher levels of microbial richness and biodiversity than Italian urban controls. We'll touch on that again uh, mm-hmm. a little bit later on. And then they said they had some unique features that were linked to they claimed a foraging lifestyle, including the absence of bifidobacteria. So, a species that we often associate with health, and many people would claim is an indicator of health, but in this hunter-gatherer population, is not even there. Um, differences in microbial composition between the sexes that probably reflected the sexual division of labor. They had enrichment in Prevotella, Treponema, and unclassified Bacteroidetes, as well as a peculiar arrangement of Clostridial taxes, Clostridialis taxa. And so it's just, we don't, I guess my, my reading of this paper and many of the others is there is no one healthy microbiome. It's sort of, uh, this expression that I've heard others repeat as well, that the microbiome you have when you're healthy is probably a healthy microbiome provided that you're eating foods that are ancestrally consistent. Right. 
Yeah. Right, exactly. And and I th- I'll the other thing I'll point out is we don't even know what half of the microbiome is still. Exactly. So there's there's still a whole I mean it really is the wild west and we we're learning a lot but it, you know it has to be taken with um you know some some recognition of the limitations of what we know at the moment. There's quite a bit of microbiological dark matter in the gut, isn't there? Yeah. Oh yeah. I think a lot of that is going to turn out to be viruses actually. Um but still unknown. I mean, you, you can do, when you do metagenomic sequencing, um, you, you basically get 50, 50% unknown is typical. Sometimes you even see up to 70% of some people's guts unknown. And we're probably going to use that word metagenomic sequences in the metagenome again. Can you help define that for people? Because there's a lot of terms that get thrown around here. Maybe we can also talk about what shotgun sequencing is and all this just how we're going to move forward. Sure, sure. So shotgun and metagenomic sequencing are actually synonymous. Um, so metagenomic sequencing is basically where they take all the DNA in the sample and they grind it up and they sequence it and then they compare that to databases um, to determine what microbes are there and what microbial gene capacities they have. So like the genome of your microbiome, essentially. Um, and so metagenomics is the most, it is the uh, best and most granular sequencing technique. Um, you'll often also, you'll often also see uh, 16S sequencing, um, which was the first way that we could study microbes with uh, DNA-based techniques. Um, but that's much more limited. You typically only get down to the genus level with the 16S sequencing. So, and 16S refers to a ribosomal subunit, right? Correct. Yeah. So it's just a particular gene that they found is um, that. Basically, all bacteria have it, um, but there's some variation between bacteria in what their sequence looks like for that. So it, it's, a, it's a nice target to be able to um, amplify and be able to compare to databases. Yeah, I think that the, the, the paper that I referred to on the seasonal cycling of the Hadza microbiome was looking at 16S sequencing. Mm-hmm. And so there's a couple of papers we'll look at later on that look at the metagenome and the metagenomic sequencing. So just so people understand, they're literally taking poop from these hunter-gatherers and just taking all the DNA from the poop, right? Yeah. Every bit of it. Yeah. And so you're getting everything. You're getting viruses, you're getting fungi, you're getting, you're getting bacteria, you're getting all sorts of organisms. And when we do that, only 50% of it, like you're saying, are things that we know. Right. The rest of it is magic and fairy dust and unicorns. <laughs> well, we just don't know. Like we have no idea. Isn't that crazy that people posture like we know what a healthy microbiome is. And it's like a, it, more than half of it or half of it, we don't even know what's in there. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, uh, to be fair, like there are quite a few studies that have characterized the microbiome in different diseases. And there are certain patterns that we see consistently across diseases in a Western context. So I think that that's starting to get us closer to um, what a healthy microbiome looks like more in terms of func- like gut function rather than specific species. But I agree that we shouldn't be focusing on species. We should more be looking at at the functions and the characteristics of the bacteria. So if you were to think about those studies, can you, can you summarize or do you have a, is there a, is there a way to characterize the patterns that are seen in those diseases in terms of gut function? What, what do we see when we do those type of studies at a broad level in terms of the way the gut changes or the gut microbiome changes mm-hmm. in a pathological state? 
Yeah, so it seems that there is this expansion of the Enterobacteraceae, particularly, and a reduction in the butyrate producers. Now, we have to consider that most of these studies were in people who are eating, you know, a more standard American diet or even a healthy, typical American diet when, um, in some cases. Um, so, you know, it's, it's possible that that's limited or biased by the fact by the people that they are using for those studies. But it's also been shown in animal models that when you basically give antibiotics to the gut or you induce inflammation in the gut, that you get this expansion of the enterobacteraceae and that those do contribute to uh, disease. So we're kind of piecing together things from animal studies, from you know, cross-sectional human studies, um, to really elucidate what patterns might be driving disease. And what are some of the organisms or uh, some of the, the genus characterizations, geni, <laughs> genuses, <laughs> that we might yeah, see so, in Enterobacteriaceae? Yeah, so um, Enterobacter, uh -huh. um, E. coli, Salmonella, um, Klebsiella, um, think. So these are all kind of the proteobacteria phyla. Yeah, Citrobacter, Shigella. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so so ones that we typically think of as, you know, potential pathogens, pathogens when they show up on a stool test. Yeah. You know, obviously it's always context dependent, but um, we do see that those tend to be more inflammatory uh, in, in Western populations. Yeah. And you mentioned a reduction in the butyrate producers. What are the typical butyrate mm -hmm. producers? Yeah, so eubacterium, um, rosberia, fecalibacterium. Um, in, in carnivores, it's more the bile-tolerant ones like allostipase or um, ones like that, coprococcus sometimes. Um, so it, it depends on the context, which butyrate producers you'll have. But um, typically in, in those studies, because they're using, they're not people eating a, a very high-fat ketogenic or animal-based diet, you are seeing kind of the classic butyrate producers being reduced. Right. And so I think this is probably a good jumping off point for a discussion about ketogenic diets, fiber, butyrate, short chain fatty acids, because I think that because perhaps because of this signal that there's a reduction in traditional butyrate producers and not the bile acid tolerant butyrate producers, um, the, the prevailing thinking has been you need to have lots of butyrate producers, traditional butyrate producers in your gut. And, and butyrate is a very important molecule and butyrate is a short chain fatty acid. And we can talk about what that means and why that's important, but there's, there's a little more to this story, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for starters, butyrate is thought of as the preferred fuel for the cells that line your gut. And so it's, for a long time, it was thought of as the only fuel that is, can provide energy for those gut epithelial cells. Um, and so it's, it's produced from the fermentation of dietary fiber and it enters gut epithelial cells. It's then oxidized in the mitochondria and results in um, energy for replication, proliferation, etc. cetera. Um, but it's very clear that there are other substrates. Um, for example, from protein fermentation, we can get isobutyrate, um, so that can also uh, basically signal 
you have fulfilled the same signaling functions as butyrate and also can be used um, in the epithelial cell for energy. So that's coming from protein. And then uh, there's also evidence that um, circulating ketones can also enter epithelial cells from the basal lateral side. So that's the side that's actually facing the bloodstream. And uh, you want to share your screen maybe? Yeah. So this is a graphic that you'd shared with me and this is the stuff you're describing, right? So dietary fiber canonically, again, there's a little more here that we're going to dig into canonically dietary fiber. This is why everyone believes that you need so much fiber, but there's more to the story <laughs> through butyrate producing bacteria makes butyrate short chain fatty acid enters the epithelial cell. Now these are sort of the cells that line the gut. And my impression is that this is predominantly colonic epithelium, but mm -hmm. is it also yep. small intestinal epithelium? The small intestine relies more on glutamine mm. for energy, um, but it can probably also use ketones. So really we're, we're, we're isolated to the colon here, or we're really mm. focused on the colonic epithelial cells. We have butyrate moving across the brush border into the colonic epithelial cell being transformed into beta-hydroxybutyryl-CoA, which is actually something that beta-hydroxybutyrate can form. And eventually you get acetoacetyl-CoA, which moves into the mitochondria and goes into what's called the TCA or the Krebs cycle. This is, you know, the sort of the PTSD inducing biochemistry for many people, but that's how we make energy. <laughs> and that's, that's essentially how these epithelial cells in the colon make energy is they take this acetoacetyl-CoA and they move it through the Krebs cycle and they make ATP out of that. And we can, I've talked about how that happens in the past. We don't need to go into great detail, but as you point out, you can also, there is a luminal, this is a luminal side. This is inside mm -hmm. your gut where the poop is. There's also a blood side. And if there are ketones here in the blood, you can take beta hydroxybutyrate, which sounds a lot like butyrate and make the same intermediates. And the savvy listener will know that beta hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate are essentially interconverted in the body based on um, uh, reductive intermediates. And acetoacetate can also be part of this chain. And so in the absence of fiber from the diet, you could use circulating ketones to essentially fuel the colonic epithelial cells, right? Right. Yeah, so that's exactly. an interesting thing. And then I wanna highlight that you pointed out that butyrate isn't the only game in town when it comes to short chain fatty acids. And you mentioned isobutyrate, um, which yeah, is a similar I, molecule, right? Yeah. Hold on. I can share, uh, share another study. Yeah. And there's also propionate, valerate. No, that's not working. Here we go. Can you see that? Yeah, it's big, but <laughs> there. Perfect. Yeah. So this was a, um, there's actually another substrate that these cells can use. Um, and I just came across this paper a month ago. So uh, for the first time, this, this study shows that the colonic epithelium can oxidize both short and long chain fatty acids, and that the relationship between the two is dependent on the substrate availability. So what that means is if you have more long chain fatty acids, or sorry, if you, um, if you block short chain fatty acid oxidation, it leads to greater long chain fatty acid use by the colonic epithelial cells. Whereas if you add butyrate, it suppresses long chain fatty acid metabolism. So it does seem like butyrate is the preferred source if you have both. Um, but long chain fatty acids can be um, a source of energy for the epithelium. And we get some long chain fatty acids from our diet, of course. Um, but interestingly, in this paper, the researchers um, discovered that bile 
contains high levels of medium and long chain fatty acids in the form of acylcarnitines, which um, is a fatty acid metabolite that is readily transported into the mitochondria. So um, quite interesting. And actually they found that the acylcarnitines can also come from the blood side and you get increased circulating acylcarnitines from the liver and muscle during fasting and exercise. And um, this gets into, again, some more biochemistry, so bear with us, guys. But um, if you stop your share, I can share a graphic of the mitochondria and acylcarnitines. So this is interesting to note that there are these fatty acids which become acyl-CoAs, and there's carnitine over here, and you get this carnitine palmitoyl oil transferase, and you get these acylcarnitines, again, moving into the mitochondria. Um, and these can be long-chain fatty acids. This is interesting that it's connected with bile. And then again, these fatty acids can be used for beta oxidation. This is good old Wikipedia here, giving us a summary <laughs> of adipocytes in the fat cell, having lipolysis, hormone sensitive lipase leading to free fatty acids in the blood, which is something that's very relevant for insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance. That's a conversation for another day. Fatty acids move in the blood as you're suggesting, or in the bile, so in the lumen or in the blood. And in the blood, they can be bound to albumin then taken up into a cell and then um, connected with CoA to form acyl, acetoacyl-CoAs. And then moving into the mitochondria across this carnitine shuttle where they go through beta oxidation, which is just a fancy name for a product of essentially cutting down a fatty acid into two carbon chains, which form acetyl-CoA, which is one of the substrates for the TCA cycle. This is how our body essentially uses that fuel. And yeah, that's a really interesting paper that not only are short chain fatty acids available, but you can use long chain fatty acids and the acylcarnitines can come from the bile. So we're starting to expand the perspective on what these colonic epithelial cells can use mm -hmm. if somebody doesn't have a lot of fiber derived butyrate. Now, I guess an interesting corollary question from that is you mentioned that isobutyrate can be, um, can be made from protein, which is cool. Mm -hmm. It can be made from short chain fatty acids. And I saw you share this paper at a previous, I think this was at the ancestral health symposium or somewhere else. I saw you share this one, but you just mentioned it again. We'll put this in the show notes guys, but this was one of the ones you mentioned that kind of talked about the way that butyrate, a short chain fatty acid could have signaling roles, but that other short chain fatty acids like isobutyrate could also serve the same signaling roles in the gut, right? Correct. Yeah. And butyrate does provide that energy for epithelial cells, but its signaling functions are also really important. So it's anti-inflammatory. It um, increases the production of regulatory T cells, which help to dampen down inflammation. And basically having enough of that um, energy produced through mitochondrial oxidation is really important for maintaining um, hypoxia in the gut. And hypoxia normally isn't a good thing, but in your, in, in your colon where you want an anaerobic environment, you want to keep that very low in oxygen, um, you need basically enough, um, basically enough substrates for your mitochondria in your colonic epithelial cells to maintain that um, because the mitochondrial oxidation utilizes oxygen coming in from the bloodstream. And I think that's so interesting that there are 
that there's these different environments in the gut and in, in the colon, you want it to be anaerobic, right? You don't want mm -hmm. any oxygen there. Oxygen there is an indication of pathology, right? Correct. Well, that's not true in the small intestine where it's, you know, the oxygen, the amount of oxygen tends to increase as you go up the GI tract. Right. Now, one of the things that's interesting, I'm sure you've seen this paper as well, the notion that perhaps, I guess this is just looking at total short chain fatty acids. This is one of my favorite gut you and papers. These cheetahs, man. The cheetah paper. <laughs> well, wasn't I it don't know if I've read this one. Oh, you haven't read this one? No. I think I talked about this one last time and you were like, but okay. they're cheetahs. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, but okay. But isn't it interesting that they had short chain fatty acids, including uh, branch chain fatty acids and short chain fatty acids, including butyrate made from collagen um, in, in these cheetahs. And I wonder if you could get, I think it's totally possible that you could get short chain. Have you ever heard anything about short chain fatty acids or butyrate being made from collagenous tissues of animals in humans? Hmm. In humans. Well, um, the study diet rapidly and reproducibly alters the gut microbiome that I think you've referenced a couple times, um, where they put people on a very short-term plant-based, completely plant-based or completely animal-based diet and looked at the microbiome, looked at different metabolites. They did find that in the people who went on the animal-based diet, they still had some butyrate production. Right. And I, you know, I don't know if the, in that study, I <clears throat> doubt they were eating the, um, you know, crunchy bits, um, somehow because they, you know, they had to recruit people for the study and I'm, I don't know if they were that, uh, uh, involved, but basically in that study, the people on the animal-based diet still produce butyrate. So I think some of that is probably from interconversion of isobutyrate to butyrate in the gut. So there are microbes who can kind of interconvert. Um, and there's also evidence that, um, certain microbes can even convert ketones, um, which are released into the gut lumen into butyrate. So they're basically converting beta hydroxybutyrate to butyrate in the gut lumen as well. Um, so plenty, plenty of ways that you could still get some butyrate production and it definitely doesn't go down to zero on an animal-based diet. And as we talked about, there are other substrates like isobutyrate or valerate or propionate or long chain fatty acids that could be there for the clonic epithelial cells. So that's interesting. Correct. So I think, I think yeah. the issue comes in, um, you know, it's, it's very clear that there's this redundancy in physiology in the clonic epithelial cells where you can have multiple substrates um, kind of acting as backups for each other, depending on the diet and the availability of different macronutrients. So if you have lots of fiber present, you can use butyrate. If you have protein, you can use isobutyrate. If you have lots of fat, you can use the ketones and the bile acyl carnitines. I think what our body is is not meant to handle is a diet that is very low in fiber, but also high in sugar. Um, because then you've got no, basically no butyrate. You might have some isobutyrate and some bile acyl carnitines, but you won't get any ketone bodies. And so that's when we start seeing the classic signs of gut dysbiosis, and permeability, and degradation of the gut mucus layer is when you have low fiber, but also very high sugar. And that might be really what is considered a westernized diet. Right? right, a, a right. so many of these researchers will say a westernized diet that is low in fiber is connected with gut dysfunction. But what they're leaving out is that a westernized diet also has seed oils, um, mm -hmm. which I've, I, I mentioned a couple of studies to you prior to us coming on the podcast, suggesting, and I could pull those up, that I'd found. I haven't gone down this rabbit hole 
extremely deep, but there is there's some evidence that linoleic acid could change uh, populations in the gut, and that's interesting. But a westernized diet may be low in fiber, but it also has processed sugars. It also has seed oils and it has other things that could be damaging to the gut. So they're, they're kind of lumping it all together and wanting to say it's the low fiber that's causing the dysfunction. But as you're really importantly pointing out, I just want to emphasize this point. It's also not ketogenic. So it's not, there's no other substrate. Like you said, there's, there's no ketones, but there's no fiber. So there's an interesting kind of paradox there for the gut, perhaps in some situations, but evolutionarily, it sort of makes sense that the gut wouldn't want to rely on plant fiber all the time, because there are a lot of times when our ancestors would not have really eaten many plants or plant fibers or, or much lower amounts of these, whether it's a seasonal variation, even the Hadza, I think there are lots of times when they get an animal or that they're not going to dig for tubers all the time. They're not going to have tons and tons of fiber. And if we look you know, even in the last 60 to 70,000 years at Neanderthals and early Homo sapiens in Europe, Northern Europe, where are they getting fiber from in the winter? So we don't, it's probably not evolutionarily advantageous for their guts to develop massive inflammatory bowel disease without fiber immediately. And all of these sort of historical anthropologic characterizations are just left out by researchers who just say, if your gut isn't doing well, just add more fiber to it, more fiber to it, more fiber to it, which doesn't always work. Yeah. Um, so this is the study you mentioned. It's a great one. Uh, and it, it is actually an interventional study in the gut with a carnivore diet in <laughs> comparison to a plant-based diet. And you can say there were increases in the abundance and the activity of Bilophila, um, Wadsworthia on the animals day based diet, but then here they go with their bias you know, kind of editorializing and saying that this supports a link between dietary fat, bile acids, and the outgrowth of microorganisms capable of triggering inflammatory bowel disease. And again, this is exactly what you were talking about, Lucy, how there's so much bias and they, they're telling the story here. Um, I mean, this is done at Harvard and there's a real strong plant-based leaning there, at least in the WH Chan School of Public Health. And so <clears throat> it's not surprising to me that they're going to editorialize that. But as we know, this, this organism doesn't always have to be that way. It doesn't always have to be triggering inflammatory bowel disease. I don't have inflammatory bowel disease that I know of. And, you know, just because it's bile tolerant doesn't mean that it's a bad organism per se. But if you look at this paper, um, the, uh, the subjects on the animal-based diet lost weight, that's not necessarily surprising if they're depleting glycogen. Um, and, we didn't, we'll get into alpha diversity in a moment, but there were no significant differences in alpha diversity on either diet, which is important to point out. They looked at fecal short chain fatty acids. As you said, there were still butyrate and other short chain fatty acids produced on the animal-based diet. People can see this. And if anyone is curious, the animal-based diet ate eggs and bacon for breakfast, cooked pork and beef for lunch. Dinner consisted of cured meats, not my favorite, and a selection of four cheeses. Snacks included pork rinds, cheese, and salami. So not exactly my ideal conceptualization of a animal-based carnivore diet. They're obviously not eating any organs. There's no real connective tissue, as you say. There's no calcium. So this is not how I would construct an animal-based diet. But nevertheless, they still made short-chain fatty acids and alpha diversity did not go down on that diet. So it's an interesting thing. I wonder what they were just wringing their hands. How do we how do we figure this out? How do we, how do we spin this for our, for our publication? Yeah. I mean, there, there is a, a decent amount of evidence suggesting that if you have an extreme overabundance of Bilophila wadsworthia, 
it can be associated with inflammatory bowel disease. But as uh, we have another paper that came out recently um, that was really interesting that suggests that um, Bilafilowadsworthia is actually associated with reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, let me share my screen here. Okay, so... Um, yeah, so conventional nutrition science has long considered that a diet rich in animal-based foods is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And one mechanism that's gained a lot of interest is the increase in serum levels of TMAO, um, trimethylamine and oxide. And so the canonical view you can see here on the left is that when you eat animal-based products that are rich in choline and carnitine, Certain gut bacteria convert the choline and carnitine to trimethylamine, or TMA, which is then absorbed and oxidized in the liver to TMAO, and then increased concentrations of TMAO in circulation um, have been shown to contribute to atherosclerosis in animal models and uh, correlate with cardiovascular disease risk in human studies. Um, but interestingly, this uh, recent study, which was published in M-Systems, supports the idea that uh, gut microbial composition can basically influence the amount of TMA produced or TMAO produced. Um, so they found that when you eat an animal-based diet, it increases the amount of this microbe, Bilophila. Um, and uh, Bilophila can actually degrade TMA to DMA, dimethylamine, which um, then essentially reduces the amount of TMAO produced. So, and in a human cohort, they found that um, Bilophila was significantly more abundant in the microbiome of healthy individuals compared to those with cardiovascular disease. So this definitely kind of points to the nuanced roles of microbes and the fact that a microbe that could be pathogenic in one context could actually be protective against disease in another. There's so much nuance here with the microbial environment. And I think that's why this conversation is so important because we just can't say that Bilophila is a bad bacteria, right? It's, it's a functional characterization. There are niches. And there are some studies that associate Bilophila, like you said, with better outcomes. Um, now, I will, um, if I'll, I'll trade you the screen share here. Yeah. So TMA and TMAO are super controversial. I'll just show, this is the paper that Lucy was referencing. Again, we'll put them all in the show notes with Bilophila. But if... You guys listening heard the last couple of podcasts I've done with Ivor Cummins. He mentioned a couple of papers that I, I want to share with TMAO. And, you know, as Lucy accurately said, in humans, TMAO was just correlated mm -hmm. uh, with, with cardiovascular outcomes. And there, the majority of researchers, I would say now, are beginning to come around to the fact that that correlation is probably reverse causality. And as I talked about with Ivor, that increased levels of TMA and TMAO are found in people who are diabetic and have kidney disease. And we know that diabetic and kidney disease patients can have higher rates of cardiovascular disease too. This is the problem with epidemiology and associations. One of the um, more compelling studies that I got from Ivor was this one, no effect of plasma TMAO and plasma trimethylysine on the association between choline intake and acute myocardial infarction risk in patients with stable angina. So basically 
They found that plasma TMAO and TML do not modify the association between higher dietary choline intake and acute MI risk. Um, it's the association is not mediated via TMAO. So I think that there's again, and this is one of the things that I really tried hard to point out in my book, choline and carnitine, the precursors for TMA in the human diet are so healthy, right? These are, these are made into neurotransmitters like acetylcholine, they're phosphatidylcholine to make our membranes. We know that a choline deficiency is pretty connected. I would say at this point, it's pretty causal that a choline deficiency can lead to, or at least worsen non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NAFLD. And then carnitine we know is this meat-based quote, you know, uh, amino acid type molecule that has antioxidant, endogenous antioxidant functions in the human body. So why would those be bad for us? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but again, your article with Tommy Wood is so needed because there's so much bias that everybody just wants to contribute to the same story over and over and over, which is vilifying meat, vilifying meat. And that's a, that's a very easy story to publish now because everybody believes it, but we're fighting against it. This was actually a study where they gave healthy aged women L-carnitine, so mm -hmm. a supplement that's been shown to be beneficial, a supplement that's found in meat and organs. One of the benefits of eating organs and meat is that you'll get more L-carnitine. And if you give women L-carnitine, it increases TMAO. It increases trimethylamine and oxide, but not markers of atherosclerosis in healthy women. And so they looked at um, all sorts of things. They looked at total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, triglycerides, et cetera. And though many listening to this will know that I am no fan of using LDL as a, um, as a marker of cardiovascular disease risk, certainly a triglyceride to HDL ratio or a, a non-LDL uh, non to uh, triglyceride ratio. There's lots of ratios you can get from that. But also this increased TMAO did not affect C-reactive protein, interleukin-6, which is a cytokine, TNF-alpha, L-selectin and P-selectin, which are, which are other sort of um, vascular adhesion molecules on the surface of the endothelium in the blood vessels, other vascular adhesion molecules, vascular cell adhesion molecule one, intracellular adhesion molecule one, or lipid profile markers. That's about as detailed a cardiovascular risk profile as you're ever going to get. And pressing their TMAO, um, pushing their TMAO up with L-carnitine didn't change any of that. So that was interesting as well. But I love that you point out that the gut seems to adjust in some ways. If we give it more meat, then there are species that may metabolize TMA in the body that increase. And I wouldn't be surprised if we find beneficial roles for TMA in the future, at least in animal studies. TMA has been correlated with improved um, cardiac contractility, the, really the, the diastolic function. I, I know there's a study in mice or rats that improved diastolic function, which is the relaxation of the heart muscle happened with increased TMA. So what if the whole thing is completely backwards, right? Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. There's also some really, the, yeah, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Uh, I was going to say, there's also some interesting, um, unpublished data I've seen from the bin loss lab at Vanderbilt that shows that the ability of microbes to produce TMA from choline is actually dependent on nitrate, which is only released in large amounts from the gut epithelium in the context of inflammation in the gut. So more, just another example that it, it often depends on the inflammatory context that these microbes are in. Yeah. So we don't want the gut to be inflamed 
and we'll, we'll talk at the end of the podcast about how to sort of fix an unhealthy gut. Some of the stuff that we've talked about in the past that I think we should really dive into again for people is the ketogenic diet specifically and its effect on the gut mucus layer and sort of immune cells and then um, stem cell function in the gut because I think these are fascinating studies that you sent me. Yeah, I got these up if you want. Yeah. So um, this was a study published by Dr. Peter Turnbaugh's lab at UCSF this year. So they found that both a ketogenic diet or ketone ester supplementation led to an increase in beta hydroxybutyrate in the lumen of the gut and in colon tissue. And furthermore, the, the ketones themselves directly inhibited the growth of bifidobacterium. So this is... Um, quite interesting because we'd seen low bit of bifidobacterium on a uh, ketogenic diet in previous studies, um, but they found that this time it was, it was actually associated with a reduction in small intestinal TH17 cells. Um, and these play an important role in maintaining gut barrier homeostasis, but TH17 cells are also implicated in autoimmune diseases. So this might be one mechanism that explains why a ketogenic diet is effective for certain autoimmune conditions. And then um, the most interesting figure of that paper, though, is this one they hid in the supplementary data, um, where they found that despite the lack of fermentable carbohydrates, the ketogenic diet maintained the gut mucus layer, which you can see here uh, in green. That's the gut mucus. The blue is the epithelial cell. Um, and so there were no changes in the thickness of the mucus layer, you can see here on the right, and um, no significant differences in the expression of the primary mucin protein, MUC2. Um, so this is definitely in contrast to previous studies where they'd, they'd said, oh, fiber-free diets degrade the gut mucus layer, but those were all fiber-free, very high sugar diets, which do deplete the gut mucus layer. Um, but here with the, with the ketones present, uh, we didn't see that. That is so cool because I can't tell you the number of times that I've had to sort of fight against this insidious, incorrect notion that without fiber, you will digest your mucus layer. I think Rhonda Patrick went on Joe Rogan three years ago and said this incorrect thing based on one mouse study that was done in notobiotic mice who were fed, as you suggest, a pretty crappy chow diet. And they had a fake human microbiome. So they introduced like 12 species into the mice. They were notobiotic, which means they had no gut bacteria to start with. They made this quote, fake human microbiome that was dependent on fiber. And then they said, well, the, the mucus looked a little bit thinner, <laughs> but if you read the paper, there was no evidence of inflammation on histology or any of these other things. And they're feeding the mice again, a non ketogenic diet. So it's very interesting that, 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 that was the one that got kind of promulgated incorrectly. And we've just been saying, Hey, that doesn't really happen. Like there's lots of evidence that the mucus layer, because I think so many people incorrectly believe to this day that if you do not eat fiber, your gut microbiome bacteria will just go to town. Like they're going into whole foods, going to the, 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 the lunch bar at whole foods and your gut mucus becomes the lunch bar at whole foods. And they just eat your gut mucus bar, you know, the gut mucus layer, which isn't really how it happens because here we are in a study clearly showing that even without fermentable carbohydrates, you had a robust mucus layer. So maybe we should just clarify for people what we're taking away from this, that 
a ketogenic diet probably isn't going to be bad for your gut. A low fiber ketogenic diet won't be bad for your gut. A fiber, a diet without fermentable carbohydrates won't degrade your mucus layer. But as you said, maybe what you don't want to do is eat a diet that's high in sugar without high in something for bacteria to ferment. Would you agree with that? Correct. Yeah. So, so it's interesting here. I mean, they have the, the chow diet here. You can even say that the chow diet, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty crappy diet, but it's, um, it's still maintaining the, the gut mucus layer because there is some fiber there to, to ferment along with, you know, the fact that it's pretty high sugar. So, um, yeah, exactly. What you, what you don't want is low fiber, high sugar. I think that's, that has definitely been shown. It's, there's numerous animal studies at a minimum that have shown that a more Western diet, low in fiber, high in sugar, um, does deplete the gut mucus layer and lead to gut dysbiosis. And I think we've seen that in, in human, uh, human studies as well. Now I know people listening to this are wondering, but wait a minute, Paul says he eats low fiber with honey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What do you think of that? Because now, because I know there's a paper we're going to look at later in this podcast that looked at sort of the ability of a high fiber diet to increase alpha diversity and a high fiber diet didn't increase alpha, did not increase alpha diversity. But as I was reading that paper, it did suggest that there was at least some association between fermented foods Mm -hmm. and alpha diversity. Now, again, we're switching between a mucus layer and alpha diversity, which is a measure of the general diversity of the gut species. But I was like, you know, I should ask Lucy if she thinks number one, if honey is fermented and Um, It's my impression that there are compounds in honey that are fermentable by bacteria in the gut, but any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll have to look into that and get back to you. Um, I haven't seen any studies on honey fermentation, but it's, it's certainly plausible, especially like you see the Hadza eating a honeycomb, which seems like it's potentially, you know, more, more robust. Like it's um, got some polysaccharides or, or things in it. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not sure about honey fermentation. Yeah, it's um you know, it's just such a honey is an interesting food. It's it's so complex and I just want to let people know that there's a lot of um there's a lot of in there's a lot of un, un not real honey out there and that if you're not getting mm. raw organic honey that's from a really good source you may be getting honey that's tainted, just like you can get olive oil and avocado oil that's tainted with seed oils. Um, but um, you know, I think that if you're getting real honey, that's a that's a very ancestrally consistent food. And my impression is that that is going to be a good thing. I just pulled up this study, sort of as we are talking. This is on the fly, but I will share it. Um, this means that I have not had time to read it, but um, the title actually looks good. <laughs> the effect of honey in improving the gut microbial balance. And they do mention in this um, paper that there are, um, there says there's, however, the possibility of the bactericidal and bacteriostatic factors in honey working synergistically with probiotics is yet to be explored in the literature. The focus of this review is on the studies that have endeavored to evaluate the prebiotic potential of honey, which has not been con- comprehensively assessed as the more established prebiotics. So that's interesting. So what we'll have to do is maybe we'll, we'll, uh, we'll both read this study and in the, 
introduction of the podcast, I'll talk about what this study might show. So if you skipped over the intro, you should go back and we'll talk about that. But I know in previous conversations with a few other people, they had mentioned that honey had definitely had some fermentable substrates in it mm. and, and something there. It would kind of make sense. There's, there are non-digestible oligosaccharides um, and substrates like that in honey. So that's, that's interesting. I wonder. I think that none of my listeners will imagine, I hope not, that I'm advocating for high fructose corn syrup. But I, I, I think this is actually a really nuanced point that if you, um, if you don't have fermentable substrate, which might be um, you know, a little bit of fiber from, non, from less toxic fruit, from less toxic, quote, vegetables, things like squash or sweet potato, things like that, um, that, I, that are actually fruits or non-sweet fruits, then you may not want to be getting a lot of processed sugar in your diet. That would probably be a bad thing um, because you'd want to have ketones as that alternative fuel for the colonic epithelial cells. But I wonder if honey sort of uh, sort of breaks the mold. Anyway, just had to ask you. <laughs> I, well, I think it's also probably dependent on how much you're eating and how long it's knocking you out of ketosis as well. You know, if you're doing a yeah. carnivore diet that's half meat, half honey, I, I might be concerned, but... Um, you know, a small amount of honey every now and then, even if it throws you out of ketosis for a little while and, you know, you're back in soon after, I, I doubt you're going to be uh, affecting too much there. Yeah. Just another one that I found briefly. These are phenolics and carbohydrates in buckwheat honey. It's not buckwheat. It's just honey, guys. Regulate the human intestinal microbiota. Again, just a quick search on the fly. Um, but it is interesting that there are apparently some fermentable carbohydrates, uh, they had 12 phenolics, four oligosaccharides, uh, identified in almost all buckwheat honey samples that affected the, the gut microbiome. And again, it would make sense evolutionarily. It's not completely far-fetched. And when I go to Africa, I plan to eat the honey there because apparently it's the best thing on the planet. Do you eat honey? You know, it's interesting. Um, I used to not do well with fructose, so mm -hmm. I kind of avoided it for a while, but listening to you recently, uh, inspired me to try it again. And I actually tolerated it really well. So, uh, might be including more honey going forward. Uh, so yeah, that's awesome. I, um, I was actually just showing some of the folks here at Hard and soil, my favorite honeys today. So the ones I like are YS eco bee farms. I don't know if you tried that one again, no, no affiliation here. Um, there's a company called Madhava, which makes a, an organic honey that they test for contaminants that I thought was mm -hmm. really good. And there's a company that makes a honey called Really Raw, uh, and those are all really good and floral honeys. Um, I've had some biodynamic honey from Germany, which was the best honey I've ever had in my life, and it, it was just amazing. But do you have honeys that you like? What kind of honey do you eat, Lucy? Oh, we just got some local raw Wisconsin nice. honey. Um, I've, I've had seasonal allergies in the past, less so now that I've kind of dialed in my health, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm all about getting the local pollen tolerance through the honey. So yeah. if I'm going to have honey, it's probably going to be local stuff. That's a good idea. It's a good idea. And do you think we'll get to this momentarily? Would you consider honey a fermented food? Yeah, that's interesting. Probably if it's raw, um, you know, I don't, Again, I, I haven't really looked in the literature on on this stuff to know know how much fermentation goes on there, but um, there's certainly probably bacteria associated with it if it's raw and unpasteurized. Um, yeah, I wonder. Yeah. I mean, they always talk about honey as being antibacterial, but I I believe that there's some fermentation process in the stomach of the bee 
Like people will joke. I think that that's what they do is they like the bees actually yeah. ferment this substance in their stomach and then they produce it. Oh, that's so, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. But so let's, let's talk about fiber and gut diversity. So let's shift a little bit here and talk okay. about alpha diversity. We, we mentioned earlier that there is, there are some patterns, expansion of enterobacteriaceae, loss of butyrate producers somewhat that do correlate with, um, with disease states. And another thing that correlates with disease states is loss of alpha diversity, right? Mm -hmm. Now we know that alpha diversity is kind of a crude metric and my friends, the minimalists, you know, have, have put this very, very sort of, uh, uh, bluntly or elegantly, bluntly, elegantly when they said, you know, alpha diversity is this, this kind of a strange metric. Maybe they heard it from Tommy or one of the people he Tommy was working with that, you can have a very diverse neighborhood, but you can have a lot of criminals in your neighborhood and it still looks mm -hmm. very diverse. So just because a neighborhood is diverse, meaning a large amount of species doesn't mean it's a healthy gut. But generally speaking, a loss of alpha diversity is associated or a decreased alpha diversity is associated with quote, urbanization, westernization, mm -hmm. and some disease states. Am I right with that statement? Correct. Yes, okay. absolutely. So that's one of the reasons, I mean, one and one of the, the the more interesting points is, as we pointed out earlier with the, the study from Harvard, looking at the plant-based diet versus the animal-based diet is that you don't lose alpha diversity when you take away fiber. And I'll show, I did a, uh, a gut bio test from longevity and I'll show my results at the end of this podcast and let you, you know, you can take a look at them and tell me what you think. They were basically on a meat and honey diet. So it'll be interesting. Uh, my gut diversity, spoiler alert, was was pretty high. It was 94%. So, you know, depending how accurate we believe the, the gut bio test from longevity is, I still had a high alpha diversity on honey and organs and meat. And, you know, the other thing is that I'm eating connective tissue, which, we, which may be fermentable as well, you know, if you're mm -hmm. a cheetah or you <laughs> like to, or you like to pretend that you're a cheetah or you like to, you know, anyway. So, yeah. so let's talk about this because there's a great, there's a couple of great studies that you mentioned here. And I think we should go, go through both of those that the first one was the, that dietary diversity didn't correlate with microbial diversity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea that dietary diversity, um, is correlated with microbial diversity really came out of the American gut project. So they basically looked at the eating habits and gut profiles of all the people who participated, and so it was kind of like a massive cross-sectional study. And they basically found that people who were eating more than 30 types of plants per week had more diverse guts than people who were eating less than 10 types of plants per week. Um, and you'll find some gut practitioners who then use this for, as rationale why we all need to be eating 30 plants, 30 different plants uh, a week. Um, but the problem is a lot of these are very observational. So um, the people who eat fewer plant foods were also likely eating a lot more processed foods. I doubt they had too many carnivores in their sample. Um, and the, the people most likely to be eating 30 types of plant foods are people who are very health conscious. So there's a lot of healthy user bias in there. Um, but more recent robust longitudinal studies with um, daily stool metagenomics, such as one that was done by uh, Dan Knight's lab, they did, um, and they did detailed dietary records. They didn't find any correlation between dietary diversity and microbial diversity. Um, and then of course, it'd be great if we had an interventional study, right? And we, we finally do because a lot of people say, well, you can't see increases in diversity with fiber intake because no study has 
looked at it for long enough. So let me share my screen here. Got a couple slides from this study. Oops. There we go. Um, so this study, this was done by the Sonnenberg Lab and it's available open access as a preprint. They enrolled 18 healthy volunteers for a high fiber diet intervention and 18 for a high fermented food intervention. And the subjects were expected to slowly ramp up fiber or fermented foods over a four week period, um, maintain consumption for six weeks, and then have a four week choice period where they pretty much maintained but went down a little. Um, so that's 16 weeks. And you can see that the, the subjects were very compliant with the dietary changes. The high fiber group increased their fiber intake from about 20 grams per day to an average of 40 grams per day. So they basically doubled their fiber intake. And the fermented food group increased their intake from zero servings of fermented foods to about five to six servings per day. Um, and so then this is... Um, the results they, of course, expected, their hypothesis was that the increased fiber intake would boost gut diversity, but this is um, the high fiber group on the left. And when you look at the alpha diversity, so this is observed ASVs or the number of unique microbes, doubling fiber intake had no effect on diversity. Interestingly, and kind of unexpectedly, the fermented foods actually led to a slight increase in microbial diversity over time. And um, they actually sampled all the fermented foods and figured out which microbes were in that. And they took those out of the analysis. So this was not actually just attributed to the species found in fermented foods, but suggests that there's actually something about fermented foods that might make the gut more permissive to new species coming in. I thought that was really interesting when I read that. And in, in honor of you and this podcast, I, uh, I might just consider drinking some pickle juice or something. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> I mean, the problem is I went to Whole Foods looking for this pickle juice or looking for some sauerkraut juice and all the sauerkrauts have stuff I don't want, like, hmm. you know, like red pepper, which I'm worried about or, or black pepper or garlic, which I don't really want in my diet. So I think I may have to stink up my house and make my own sauerkraut and just throw away the, the nasty fermented cabbage and just drink the, drink the fermented vegetable juice. But that's how non-dogmatic I am, guys. I'm willing to do this experiment. Although, like I said, my gut diversity was pretty high on a test. I don't know if there, we can talk about it later in the podcast. I don't know if there are any really accurate tests of gut diversity available to the consumer, but my gut diversity was already pretty high. But I thought, well, I would be willing to drink some fermented salt water from pickles or from sauerkraut. I don't have to eat the fermented cabbage. Traditionally, I've thought of fermented foods as kind of a fascinating way to detoxify plant foods that have toxins. And I think this is the way they're used in traditional cultures. Um, as you guys will hear here in an upcoming podcast with Mary Ruddock, who's one of the people I'm going to Africa with in February, in her observations, a lot of hunter-gatherer tribes in Africa eat meat and organs and some sort of fermented starch or some sort of starch. They might eat grains, but they're going to ferment the grains to detoxify them. And I thought that's really interesting. So um, again, really trying not to be dogmatic and closed-minded about this stuff, but certainly that the pattern that I always see is that they're always focused on animal foods and organs. And I, I love that she, or I thought it was very interesting that she observed that they were also trying to get carbohydrates when they could, but they weren't just going to eat them without some detoxification. So if you want to eat cabbage, you best eat cabbage with the fermentation because that will get rid of Rhonda Patrick's beloved sulforaphane, which is what you want to get rid of, in my opinion. Again, 
I'm iconoclastic and against the status quo. So I don't think you want the isothiocyanates in your diet. And we know that in fact, the, uh, the fermentation process will break, will break those down. It'll break down the glucosinolates that are precursors. So you won't get those, what I believe are toxic chemicals. And most people would accept there are at least some degree of plant toxins. So that's interesting. So I, yeah, I'll let you maybe know. Maybe we can get into the plant toxicity later, if you like. I think there's a lot of interesting microbiome interactions there. But yeah, yeah. Um, there was one more finding here I want to make sure we highlight because this is really interesting. Um, was the differential immune responses from the people on the high fiber group. Right. Um, so they found that putting people on this high fiber intervention, some people had a reduction in inflammatory markers, others had a more neutral response, and some people had actually had an increase in inflammation from the increased fiber intake. Um, but interestingly, those with the highest microbial diversity at baseline tended to be the people who had a more beneficial immune response to fiber. Um, so that's pretty interesting and, and kind of parallels what we see sometimes in clinical states of gut inflammation that sometimes throwing more fiber, um, more fuel on the fire isn't, uh, isn't the best strategy. For some people it works, but um, for others, you know, this, this may be pointing to that kind of individualized immune response there. Um, interestingly, the fermented foods, on the other hand, were more universally anti-inflammatory across the cohort. Um, so that was interesting. I found that really interesting as well. And I've heard other people who work with a lot of gut patients, my friend, Michael Ruscio and others say the same thing that oftentimes if the gut is inflamed, adding more vegetables and more fiber is not the answer clinically. Um, maybe I think Tommy Wood had mentioned that, that it is individual and goodness, we're going to talk about this next, but rehabilitating a broken gut is not always easy and nor is it a one size fits all, uh, sort of picture. So, right. um, yeah. yeah. And I'll say just a quick thing on the fermented foods. They were universally anti-inflammatory across this cohort. I do not see that in, in my client population. And I, the first time I ate raw sauerkraut, I had a 90% body flare of eczema. It was horrible. Um, so be careful with fermented foods if you haven't tried them before. Um, the, the reaction, it is very individual. Um, and I can consume them now. You know, I, I had sauerkraut for lunch. Um, but yeah, it, it's individual. And if you're kind of never, never eaten anything fermented before, just proceed with caution. Fermented foods are certainly may have higher levels of histamine for people who right. don't have enough DAO, <clears throat> diamine oxidase that could cause, um, some, some triggering of histamine insensitivity. There are a lot of histamine and autoimmune related conditions, MCAS, uh, things like that. So yeah, they're, they're not universally good. And, you know, even in this paper, they, that I believe the two foods they associated with the most improvement, I think were yogurt and fermented vegetable brines. Is that right? right? Yeah. And I certainly will not tolerate yogurt. I cannot do dairy. I've, I've done a lot of podcasts about dairy recently because we just released a colostrum, which I think is super helpful for a lot of people. And before we wrap up this podcast, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on colostrum, but I've just known that for me, I don't tolerate casein and whey and yogurt isn't going to work for me, but for people who do tolerate casein and whey, I think that fermented yogurts and cheeses and things like this can have a lot of nutrition and colostrum is certainly very rich in immune immunoglobulins, proline-rich peptides, hepatocyte growth factor, all kinds of imp really important things, lactoferrin, et cetera. So maybe let's move on to 
I think the most important part of the podcast, which is what do we know about how to, how to fix a gut that's broken, um, how to increase gut diversity, as you say, how do we rewild the gut? There's some really cool studies here. Yeah, definitely. So um, I came across this one recently when I was kind of looking for like, what, what does lead to increased diversity? If, you know, fi- it's, it's not fiber and, you know, fermented foods are maybe moving the needle a little bit, but um, I found this study and, and surprisingly they found that uh, paleo dieters in urban Italy have microbial diversity levels equivalent to the Hadza. And I'm going to show a figure in a second. Um, but this was published in plus one. Um, and it's really interesting because it's commonly said that we've lost about half of our ancestral diversity in industrialized populations. Um, but this study uh, basically found that uh, if you look here, they're showing the Italians on a modern Paleolithic diet in red and um, Italians on a uh, Mediterranean diet in blue. And then they're comparing these to three uh, more indigenous tribes, um, the Hadza, the Matses, and the Inuit. And so these are two different metrics of alpha diversity. I wish they'd put Chawan in there as well, but um, <laughs> we'll go with these two. Um, and basically, it's really interesting to see that there's there's really no difference there between the Hadza and modern Paleolithic diet eaters, even though they're living in an urban environment. Um, and it's important to note that this is a cross-sectional study, so we can't necessarily say it's the diet because, you know, paleo eaters are also potentially more likely to be health conscious, living a more ancestral lifestyle, getting sunlight, exercising. Um, but I, I suspect that the exclusion of processed foods might play a, a role here, um, but also a lot of other factors. So all these subjects were metabolically healthy. They had no signs of chronic disease, weren't taking any regular medications. Um, most of them exercised regularly doing fairly intense exercise and um, half had daily contact with nature. So, but mm. daily, so, that's it. That's significant daily contact. I mean, how many of us really have daily contact with nature? Like not a lot. Yeah. I think I'd have to look at what their definition Defining. of that was. It, yeah. it might've been just like walking their dog outside. Well, but um, that, yeah. But, who knows? Yeah. Maybe that's, that's impactful. Yeah. So, um, I, I thought this study was really interesting, suggesting, you know, we don't necessarily know which component it is, but it is possible to have a diversity that is um, equivalent to to a non-Western population. And I, I I was struck by the fact that it it's significantly better than Italians who eat a, quote, Mediterranean diet, right? This is the diet of choice in Western medicine now, or one of them. And at least in terms of alpha diversity, which, as we talked about, is not the end-all and be-all. There is, there's a real difference there between someone who's, you know, presumably not eating bread, not eating grains, not eating processed sugar, you know, not eating these things. You have to think about what the difference is between a modern paleolithic diet and the Mediterranean diet, maybe eating more meat. It's hard to say exactly. They describe the diet and it's kind of what we might think of as a paleolithic diet. So meat, vegetables, fruit, nuts, and seeds. Uh, I believe is how they describe it. Now, that's not mm-hmm. necessarily my conceptualization of an ideal human diet, but the people doing that, like Lucy said, they're they're intentional. If you're choosing to do a paleolithic diet, again, the end here is only 15 people in the Italian cohort doing the modern paleolithic diet, but that's an intentional cohort who probably do other things. And there's a study I can pull up um, in a moment. You may have seen it again. It's just an association, but 
there are associations between sunlight exposure and um, uh, I believe the gut microbial diversity. Have you seen that study? Mm, can't say I have. I've definitely, there's definitely some interesting studies correlating vitamin D status with the microbiome that I've seen, but I haven't seen sunlight. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Yeah, here it is. Again, this is not interventional, although how cool, how cool would it be if we could do an interventional study like this? Like you're in the interventional group. You have to go out in the sun 30 minutes a day. So again, this will be in the show notes guide. Skin exposure to narrow band UVB light modulates the human intestine microbiome. Um, actually this, let's see, this might actually be actually. an interventional study. Um, yeah, this is a clinical pilot study using a human healthy female cohort. They were divided into those who took vitamin D supplements throughout winter prior to the start of the study and those who did not after three NB narrowband UVB light exposures within the same week. This is really cool. Um, the serum 25 hydroxy levels of participants increased 7.3 nanomoles. Uh, and it was correlated negatively with the 25 hydroxy prior, which makes sense. The fecal microbiotic composition using 16S uh, ribosomal RNA sequencing, we talked about that, showed that exposure to narrow band UVB significantly increased alpha and beta diversity. How cool is that? Yeah, that's awesome. I hadn't seen that study before. It's interesting yeah. which microbes increased um, with that. So, some of those are definitely butyrate producers. Um, others we know less about. You want to take a stab at pronouncing these so I don't make myself look silly? <laughs> so you like can look silly. ACA is the that first one. I actually spelled it wrong. Um, and then a number of the clostridias are typically butyrate producers. Um, D sulfobacteriaceae is probably one of the sulfate reducing bacterial groups. Um, so yeah, I'm not I'm not sure what to make of those findings, but it's certainly certainly interesting that it does lead to changes. Pretty cool. But then again, we are told to stay in our homes. Don't go outside, <laughs> right? Yeah. Do you want to talk about the um, the the study in mice where they were looking at how to, as you say, rewild the microbiome? Because that's fascinating to me. Uh, you know, how do we rehabilitate a microbiome that's become urbanized? Yeah. So. This was a study that I came across from uh, Dr. Aspen Reese, who's at UCSD now. Um, so first they actually looked at how much diet could overcome basically the industrialized gut microbiome. And so they were, they were doing this in domesticated animals and their wild counterparts as kind of a model for industrialized humans and our ancestors. Um, and they found that feeding domesticated animals a wild diet makes their microbiome look a bit more like their wild counterparts. So for example, if you feed domesticated dogs raw meat, their microbiome does start to look a bit more like a wolf and vice versa. So if you feed the wolf dog chow, it starts to look a little bit more like a dog. It's not that surprising, right? Like, of course. No, right? no. I mean, it, <laughs> it's not all that surprising. No. It's such um, a model. It's such an analogy for a Westernized diet, right? We shouldn't be feeding our dogs dog chow, but that's a whole different discussion. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then they also found, they uh, basically went out and, and captured wild mice and um, isolated their microbiome. And they found that lab mice 
can actually become rewilded just by exposure to a wild microbiota without any antibiotic pretreatment. So it was almost like um, there was a preference for the wild microbiome, um, and that seemed to take hold uh, even without having to do anything to wipe out the initial microbiome. So I found that really interesting. So what did they do with those mice to rewild them? Did they just expose, what did they, how did they expose them to a wild microbiome? Did they just, so they took, they took these wild, they took these wild mice and they put them with domesticated mice. And then the domesticated mice started to have a different microbiome just by association with wild animals. Did they change the feed? Yeah. So in this case, I actually think they, they basically performed a fecal transplant. Oh, cool. Um, but it, it, it doesn't, it's tricky with mice because if you house them together, they actually are coprophagic. They eat their own, they eat, eat others' poops. So they're so, doing the fecal transplant um, no matter what. Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't really matter whether you're inoculating the fecal transplant or just putting them in the same environment. Um, they will essentially have that that transfer. But um, yeah, suggests that maybe maybe humans, if we have exposure to some of our more wild or ancestral microbes, um, in the environment that, uh, we could return to a more wild microbiota. So maybe your trip to the Hadza is going to be, uh, <laughs> changing a lot of things. It might be interesting to do a gut analysis prior and then one oh, afterwards yeah. and see what's different. I know Jeff Leach describes giving himself a fecal transplant with a turkey baster from the Hadza while he was there. I don't know if it really, really? did anything. I mean, the, the, I mean, I'm sure when he was, cause this is one of the guys from the human microbiome project or the human gut project. And, you know, he was there, but I imagine he was eating Westernized foods. And so mm. if you're not, you know, I, I think that every time I'm out in the wilderness and I'm hunting or I'm just backpacking, I think of this, I'm getting blood on my hands. I'm getting all this animals microbiome. I've heard this. I don't have a study to show, but perhaps you can corroborate this. I've heard that people who have dogs have a more diverse microbiome. Now, whether that has to do with them walking the dog outside or petting the dog, as we know, there's all these potential possibilities there. Whenever I see a dog, I'm, I'm, I'm petting it. You know, I'm happy to pet the dog thinking I'm getting more microbes. I'm getting more microbes. <laughs> this is something that our ancestors would have done, right? We never butcher animals, but when you hunt a deer or a buffalo, you're going to touch that animal. And that's going to expose you to a microbiome on the skin, on the fur. Mm -hmm. When you're butchering that animal, you're going to get exposed to the microbiome. You're trying not to cut into their viscera, their stomach, or their intestines, but you still might. So you're definitely going to give yourself some, quote, special probiotics when you touch animals. And I think that's, a, that's potentially a big part of it. Potentially soil-dwelling organisms we would have had more exposure to. This kind of quickly segues into conversations about the hygiene hypothesis. I don't know if you have any mm -hmm. thoughts about that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one, one reason I get concerned about people just going, you know, like eating soil um, to try and repopulate their gut is because we have become so sterilized. Um, and, you know, it's, it's tricky because if you haven't been exposed to those when you're younger, when your immune system is maturing and gaining tolerance to those microbes, then it may not be a beneficial thing to put them back in your gut now when you might have a really bad immune response to it. So. Um, but there's, there is some really interesting, you know, examples of people who have debilitating autoimmune disease who um, end up trying helminth therapy and really get a lot of benefits from that um, because of the modulation of the immune system. So, yeah, hygiene hypothesis is, uh, we could probably do a whole, whole podcast on that. Um, but in terms of 
in terms of exposure to pets, I think that that is definitely a route for microbial exposure. I mean, they're bringing soil microbes in to the house. Um, and, you know, if you don't have pets and you don't get out in nature, you don't hunt your own animals, you know, there's, there's not a lot of microbial exposure in, in the indoor environment. And I actually think fermented foods might be kind of a fix for that for the people who don't get out, aren't able to get out in nature and, um, get that kind of soil exposure more, you know, hands-on. Yeah. And I definitely think that that's a potential argument for letting your kids play in the dirt. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, definitely. Um, I'll just show this reference so that we can put it in the show notes. This is the one that Lucy was mentioning with the uh, sort of the industrialized gut microbiota and the wild gut microbiota of a variety of species. The lab mice, they, like Lucy said, laboratory mice recovered wild-like microbial, microbial diversity and responsiveness with experimental colonization, which is basically them saying fecal transplant, et cetera. But you can do it. And as you point out, they didn't even have to do antibiotic pretreatment. Increasingly, I think that when we are dealing with patients who are suffering with gut stuff, we wonder about FMT or killed FMT, you know, postbiotic therapy, things like this. And um, there's always a question, do we need to do antibiotic pre-exposure? And of course, FDA has only approved fecal microbiota transplant for people with recurrent or recalcitrant Clostridium difficile, but it's certainly being done sometimes helpfully um, in other countries, British Columbia and other countries. And I suspect it'll be something that we start to do in the U.S., The other thing I wanted to ask you about is what are your thoughts about the nutrients that we need to build or maintain a healthy gut lining? That's one of the things I think about a lot is that this microbiome is all the bacteria in the gut. And we haven't really talked about the gut lining itself. I think about the gut lining in the context of foods uh, like hot peppers or capsicum spices or nightshades or other lectin containing foods that may, you know, cause zonulin release that may cause the gut my, the gut epithelium to become fenestrated and open. But in, I think that it seems like there are a number of nutrients that we need to maintain the gut lining in a fortified state. And I wonder if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of that is going back to the substrates we talked about earlier. So having enough energy for your, for your epithelial cells um, is really important, but also like all of that, uh, basically substrate oxidation and energy production is happening in the mitochondria. So everything that is involved with mitochondrial health is really important for gut health. Um, So, you know, all the B vitamins, CoQ10, um, you know, any, anything that's really going to support mitochondrial health is going to be hugely impactful. Um, I've done a big deep dive on tryptophan metabolism lately, and it's clear that B6 is really important for balancing tryptophan metabolism in the gut. Um, and making sure you're not kind of skewed towards one pathway or another that could potentially cause inflammation or um, lead to reduced production of serotonin. So, um, yeah, certainly, certainly the B vitamins seem really important, and um, those those energy substrates that I that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, I've seen zinc and other minerals are critical for the gut lining. Um, and then the other thing I thought is interesting is. I'm always interested in stories of hunter gatherers eating the intestines Mm. after they clean it. Mm -hmm. And I think that is cool. You know, at hardened soil, we make a gut and digestion supplement with like actual desiccated tripe, which is stomach and intestines. And I think 
that's one way to increase your alpha diversity, you know, like that's definitely a good way to do it. And of course, there's no, you know, there's no living microbes in there. All of these, you know, things are tested for bacteria, but even the DNA from these microbes that are not living microbes can affect eye microbes. And I think that with some of the stories I've heard from people with gut indigestion, it's really cool to think that just being exposed to animals and even the contents of their gut, once they've been sterilized, appears to be really helpful. I don't know if you've had any experience with that. Have you ever mm. eaten any stomach or intestines? I haven't. I mean, I've eaten um, like kielbasa or sausage. It's got, right. you know, the the pork casing. Um, so, and I've always thought about that. Like, I, you know, I'm eating intestine. Is that good for my gut? And, uh, you know, I think it's definitely plausible. It's got all the nutrients to make a gut right in there. So, um, yeah, definitely yeah, it's got possible. it's collagen there that could be fermented, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I think I will pull up my longevity and I'll just run through some of this and see if you have any thoughts about it. Okay. Sure. So as I mentioned, this is from May of 2020 and I was eating honey and meat and organs and, uh, honey, meat, organs and bone broth. So, Again, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the accuracy of this. They say my diversity is 94%. Uh, I'll just run through some of this. If we go into short-chain fatty acids, they're going to say my butyrate is a little bit on the low side, not surprising. Lactate, propionate, and valerate. So there's different short-chain fatty acids there, but I'm definitely making some butyrate. It's not like I'm making zero. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what you'd expect there. Um, I'll just show you this one and we can go back to whatever. So these are my phyla. Um, yeah, so you, you only had 34% identified. I know. Look at all this dark matter. 65.56 unknown. So I am full of a, a mystery, you guys. <laughs> I'm mostly a mystery, but you can see here's the, the phyla that we talked about. Bacteroidetes, Formicutes, Proteobacteria, other Actinobacteria, some of the ones we didn't talk about. Um, and then Keystone Taxa are here. Low in Methanobacteria higher in Prevotella, Fecobacterium prasnutiae, Acromantia, Bifidobacteria kind of there. I mean, I'm certainly probably cycling into ketosis and they're going to look at this and say, hey, your proteobacteria are really high. And I think this is kind of what I was mentioning at the beginning with the, with the Hadza that this doesn't necessarily mean a problem, but this will, this would trigger a lot of people, I think saying, oh, your proteobacteria are too high, but which type of proteobacteria is it? Um, I think it, you could probably get into the actual ones, but we don't have to now. Um, if you look at these other scores, I mean, inflammation, minimal, uh, it talks about these bacteria contribute to a higher risk yeah. score. I, I really like longevity, but I hate this. I, I really hate this section of the report. It's, okay. That's valuable um, though. Yeah. I mean, I think their raw data is really solid. They run it through the core biome, um, platform, which was created by Dan Knights. He's like, huge computational biologist in microbiome research. So mm -hmm. I have every confidence in the raw data and I probably the diversity score as well. Um, the, the other sections, like I've, I've seen them say, oh, these good bacteria are low and you need to increase them. And then they list like citrobacter, you know, it's for, for how to, you know, reduce your constipation score. And yeah, if you got, if you put some citrobacter in there, you, you'd probably reduce your constipation because you'd have overt diarrhea. But right. a lot of them are, a lot of the things they say here are unfortunately based on associations without really understanding what these microbes are doing. Yeah. Yeah. But 
maybe if people were looking for diversity, it would be a valuable metric, I wonder. Well, I, I still use it. I just look at the raw data. So if you go to community breakdown, you can do the raw data and then you oh, can yeah. really get into the nitty gritty with that. You can see like, you would be able to see what your proteobacteria are. Um, might get a little, it, it, like it, it'll download a huge Excel <laughs> spreadsheet. So um, right. I do use that with my clients quite a bit. Um, I wonder if we can do that. Yeah, maybe I'll do that real quickly and we can look to see what my actual proteobacteria are. Oh, okay. Well, it's not going to let me do it. I may have to, let's see here. All right. Well, okay, cool. And then I think another thing that might be interesting for listeners to hear about is how is we haven't even talked about your story. We might've talked about it a little bit on the first podcast, but you want to share a little bit about your story and how you're eating now? Sure. So I had eczema for most of my childhood. Um, and then in college, and, and I should say I ate a terrible diet growing up, very, very processed, lots of refined carbs, um, some protein, basically no vegetables. Um, and around my second year of college, my sister started getting interested in the paleo diet and she kind of put me onto a lot of resources and said, oh, I think going gluten-free could help your eczema. And I was really resistant because I was the biggest pasta pizza eater there ever was. And uh, yeah, she, uh, but she encouraged me to do it and I did see a lot of benefits from that. And then I went full paleo, saw more benefits from that, but still was struggling with a little bit of eczema. Um, I actually then tried the GAPS diet, which is probably the closest to carnivore that I've ever come. Um, so I did that for a month. That's like a very broth heavy, um, but it does include some well-cooked meat um, and eggs, which I realize now are a trigger for me. But um, I, I lost a lot of weight on that diet, like way, way too much weight. Um, and my athletic performance was suffering. Um, so that fall, I found the autoimmune protocol and I started doing that and like autoimmune paleo, autoimmune paleo. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty close so, to carnivore too. I mean, maybe depending on the macros, maybe, but I feel like I was eating a lot more vegetables than you okay. would consider carnivore ish. Yeah. Um, and so I found a lot, I found out a lot of triggers through doing that process mm -hmm. and with, um, doing like keto low starch AIP, my skin started to heal after my huge fermented food explosion. And then, um, and my, my athletic performance was the best it had ever been on that, like low starch keto, um, autoimmune protocol. Um, and since then I've really been able to diversify my diet. Like as my gut has healed, um, I still would say I'm AIP ish. Um, but I'm, and, and I kind of cycle in and in and out of ketosis. I do a lot of intermittent fasting. Um, but I know that there are certain plant foods that I don't do well with. Uh, I eat animal protein for most at most meals, um, along with a good amount of veggies. And uh, yeah, seems to work pretty well for me at this point. Do you get organs? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I can't say I've ever eaten much organs in their whole form, but I get like a primal beef mix with organs. Uh -huh. um, so it's got liver, kidney, heart, and spleen. Perfect. Um, and yeah, I really like that. I put that on salad a couple times a week. On yeah. what? On salad. On what? <laughs> I love my salad. I can't. Uh... Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> all right. All right. Okay, I like cool. I like variety in my diet. I, I you know I can do just about any diet. Like, um, I, I have the discipline to do it. But 
yeah, I just, I, I feel better with some plants in my diet. I think historically, especially women would have eaten more plants. Um, and yeah, I've, I've, I've experimented with going a little bit more towards the animal-based side. Um, and I can't say that I really feel much better. I do tend to do that more during the winter when I'm not getting as much sun. I tend to be more, um, more in ketosis, um, more intermittent fasting in the winter when I'm not getting as much sunlight, maybe not getting as much exercise activity. Um, so I do some cycling like that. Yeah. I definitely think that in terms of like a monthly cycle, there are times when women may benefit from more carbohydrates. And I think, you know, that's totally, I've seen that, that, that there's some differences between men and women in terms of carbohydrate sources and stuff. But so I got the, the raw data up from one Jevity. If you want to look at this, it looks like it starts with the biggest abundance up here. So the biggest mm -hmm. abundance is nothing. <laughs> 34% bacteria, some viruses, some eukaryotes, which I presume are yeasts or fungi, archaea, which is a whole different thing we didn't even talk about. But I mean, if you go through it, it's like going to tell you, you know, 2.64, proteobacteria. And then you can scroll down and see proteobacteria down here, you know, and you can look at this, but it is interesting. I mean, we don't have to go through all these, but you can see all of the species that are in my gut or were. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty extensive file. You can get all the way down to the species level. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So that's actually pretty interesting. And there's more proteobacteria here. I mean, in terms of the proteobacteria, would you be looking for anything in particular, like Klebsiella, Citrobacter? Yeah, I mean, you could do just do like a search for Enterobacteriaceae. Mm -hmm. um, would be the most kind of include a lot of those more pathogenic microbes. But again, again, it's all context. Some Enterobacteriaceae is normal. Um, some E. coli is even normal. Um, commensal E. coli plays a lot of important functions. So, yeah, I guess it'll show you all. You know, it says Enterobacterales. There's 176, but yeah, it's interesting. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a cool tool though. And it's good to know that, that you find that to be, I mean, this is, is this metagenomics? It is. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's difficult because you will find things on there that could be false positives. Um, like we were talking about a bit before, uh, we started recording that, you know, it, it's tricky with metagenomics. You'll sometimes find things that would be worried, could be worrisome like Giardia at very low abundance, like Cryptosporidium at very, very low abundance. And it's, we don't really yet understand at what threshold in this metagenomics that becomes clinically relevant. And of course, it's, it's also dependent on the, the individual person. Um, so sometimes can be useful if someone's got uh, dealing with like post-infectious IBS maybe, or, you know, you suspect an underlying infection that hasn't been identified, then a profile like longevity that does metagenomics can be helpful to, to see what might be there, but it is very difficult to determine what's really a pathogen and at what abundance does something become truly a pathogen. Um, or are we just able to look with a more granular focus now and we're seeing more than we're used to seeing? Yeah. And I generally tell people that if you don't have gut symptoms, yeah. you probably don't need to go looking for a problem. <laughs> like, um, would you agree with that? 
Yes. Um, although, or, I mean, let's say you don't have skin, you don't have symptoms in general, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So I would say if you, if you're, you know, healthy and feeling good, um, you know, healthy gut microbiome is the microbiome you have when you're healthy. Um, but I, I will say that I do think that there are some people who seem to be stuck on a carnivore diet and can't even dip into carnivore-ish. And I don't think that that is healthy. I think you should be able to have at least some flexibility in terms of being able to eat some of those less toxic plant foods. And obviously, for whatever reason, there may be some people that that just isn't possible for them. But I would argue that, you know, is treating the root cause really removing every single plant toxin possible? Or is treating the root cause restoring the health of the microbiome that has co-evolved with us and in many cases can deal with some of these plant toxins in low amounts. Right. And so if somebody is at a position where, because I know you've worked with a number of people on carnivore diets now, um, if somebody's in a position where they're full animal-based, they're animal-based carnivore, and they want to go to just animal-based, and I'm sort of starting to use that verbiage just to make it clear to people, carnivore-ish is now animal-based. People understand the idea. It's like meat and organs and the least toxic plant foods. If somebody's trying to make that transition is struggling with it, what would you recommend? I mean, like, how would you, how would you go about trying to rehabilitate that microbiome? And it's going to be individual. You might, maybe you would start with testing, but just, can you lay it out for us? Like, how would you think about that? Because for me personally, I do great with honey. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't feel great with fruit. Um, and, and that may just be that I overeat fruit or that it's, it's something that I tend to overeat squash. Apparently the lectins in squash trigger my eczema. It, mm-hmm. it, it comes back pretty consistently. Sweet potatoes, maybe ancestrally consistent, definitely made me burp for hours. And is that just mm-hmm. a, an adaptation thing? Um, and so I'm thinking like, well, what's left? Like if I want to do, do I do like carrots or because I'm always trying to experiment, right. And expand my diet into animal based just for the sake of experimentation. I feel pretty darn good with meat and organs and honey, um, and collagen, mm-hmm. but I'm always thinking like, how can this get better? How can I optimize? Am I missing something? And I'm trying not to be dogmatic. So, um, what would you, any thoughts about that? Like how you might kind of gently help somebody make that transition? Yeah. So certainly getting testing could be helpful to see if there's anything that's kind of um, any, any particular bacteria that might be blooming when you're trying to reintroduce things. So I've seen some people, for example, that might have a predominance of methanogens or they might have some opportunistic candida overgrowth. And when they go carnivore, that gets, gets a lot better because you're not feeding those microbes. So it's possible that it's, you know, kind of a, a dysbiosis that was present before that's kind of rearing its head when you're trying to introduce those, um, those foods. So, um, certainly testing to see if if that's relevant. Um, I, I will also say you mentioned colostrum earlier. I've found that, um, a similar product serum bovine immunoglobulins. Um, it's got, it's got the same immunoglobulins as colostrum, but, uh, because it's derived from the serum of the cow, it doesn't have any of the, um, the milk proteins that might be inflammatory to certain, to some people. So, um, I've often found that taking some of those can potentially help in the diversification of the diet. Um, and really just going low and slow with, uh, introducing very, very well cooked vegetables, those that are less likely to be immune, elicit an immune response. Um, and also just trying 
multiple different types, right? So some people might really react introducing sweet potatoes, but really well-cooked carrots might work fine or squash might work fine. So um, yeah, just, just kind of playing around just because you don't tolerate one vegetable doesn't mean you can't tolerate all vegetables or all fruit. Um, so that would definitely be one thing. And I also think that I've, you know, I've seen a few people that um, I suspect do have an underlying infection. Um, so not just like dysbiosis, but they have mm-hmm. some sort of parasitic infection that might be really kind of flaring their immune response. And being in carnivore keto um, is really helpful for kind of keeping that at bay. But addressing that might be helpful at allowing you to diversify the diet. Cool. Yeah, it's interesting for me. And and I really caution people. I share my story just in hopes that it'll be valuable, but I caution people that what works or doesn't work for me may not work or not work for you. And certainly when I started talking about honey, I think there were people, I didn't do a good enough job of communicating the message. There were people with overt diabetes who started eating honey. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, you know, honey's not for you when you have diabetes. It's It's for you when you get metabolically healthy. And the same thing is true here. There are a lot of people who don't react to squash. Uh, mm-hmm. And in that case, it can be a really enjoyable adjunct to the diet for people. There are a lot of people who don't have the same reaction to fruit. The one thing I haven't tried, or one of the things I haven't tried is really well-cooked carrots, but it's been interesting for me to come back. You know, I played around with white rice and I was like, well, it just doesn't feel like much. Like, why am I eating this white rice? I, I do feel better with the cyclic nature of ketosis mm-hmm. as we talked about earlier. And so what I'm doing right now, again, this is just my current experimentation. It's not canon is just carbohydrates in the morning. And I'm probably doing 70 to 80 grams of a raw organic honey. And they're, they're really enjoyable. doesn't create cravings for me later in the day. And I'm fascinated by sort of the prebiotics in there and other things that may actually be fermentable to some extent. And it feels pretty good on my gut, but I'm always trying to explore. And so I'll have to let you know if I get the carrots in or something else. But like I said, I'm, I'm also willing to experiment with some like very specific vegetable brine. We'll see. Mm. <laughs> we yeah. will. We will see how that goes. And I used to drink a lot of kombucha. I know in that study, um, they, they kombucha was one of the fermented foods. I poo-pooed it for a while thinking like, eh, I know a lot. I mean, a lot of kombucha is going to have tea in it. I'm not a huge fan of that, but it also has, um, you know, cane sugar, most of which is going to be fermented. So it's mm-hmm. not, you're not going to get a whole lot of sugar in there. It's just like, eh, I don't know. I mean, any thoughts about kombucha? I, yeah, I personally love kombucha. It doesn't mm-hmm. work for everyone. Um, but kombucha actually was one of the things that really helped in healing my eczema when I was in that massive flare. Interesting. Stupidly refused steroids. But uh, yeah, it was like my skin loved it. And I was just drinking like a gallon of it a week. Um, and I think it, like it's got a lot of organic acids in it. So yeah. I think it's it, it can be really therapeutic because of that. And um yeah, fermented foods are kind of honestly kind of still like a black box that we don't fully understand. And every batch differs in terms of its microbial content. Um, it's, it's certainly if you're getting like a local ferment as opposed to something that's, you know, made in, in giant batches. But yeah, I think we're going to learn a lot more about fermented foods. Yeah, that study was interesting. And, <clears throat> you know, I, I think that they're kind of a black box too. The, the only... Um, caveat that I'll add about fermented foods is I have heard anecdotes of people over consuming them and having dental ramifications mm-hmm. from all the acidity and, you know, maybe some enamel uh, issues. But I guess if you just eat them in moderation, they're 
probably okay for a lot of people. They certainly appear to be one way to detoxify some of the things that are in plant foods. So awesome. Well, we covered a lot. Um, that's like almost two hours. Anything else you want to cover before we wrap up? I'm going to give you the last words here and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of tie a bow on it. I don't know. I think we, we covered most things. I would say the one thing that we didn't touch on was kind of the, the gut hydrogen economy Mm -hmm. and kind of, um, I, I, I did mention the methanogens, but I would say there's, there's one particular case where I would really recommend against a carnivore ketogenic diet. And that's if if you have hydrogen sulfide overgrowth, Mm -hmm. um, before going carnivore. So if you have that on an omnivorous diet, um, you're probably not going to tolerate a carnivore diet. I've had people come to me where they, they basically had loose stools already before going carnivore and then just never came out of the diarrhea phase of carnivore for like five months. Um, and, uh, so what we know from the literature is that hydrogen sulfide producers, these are things like desulfovibrio, like bilophila. Um, if you have an overgrowth of these before carnivore, they do tend to thrive more on the sulfur amino acids and protein. And they also can use the sulfur from taurine conjugated bile acids. So a diet high in animal f- protein and fat is, um, just kind of a disaster for people who already have that preexisting, um, issue. So, and actually I've seen clinically that in that case, shifting them actually a little more plant-based and limiting animal protein and fat might be helpful therapeutically in the short term um, until they're able to address that. So. And what about in the long term? How do you address it long-term? This hydrogen sulfide overgrowth is such a black box. It's like, yeah. do we even know how to treat it? I mean, what, what about in the long term for those kind of people? Yeah. So I actually just released a course covering all that research. Um, Certainly doing a, a short-term plant-based diet can, can kind of shift things positively. A lot of people have molybdenum deficiency in hydrogen sulfide overgrowth, and that's important for detoxifying hydrogen sulfide. So that can be helpful in extreme cases. Molybdenum's um, in liver, just saying. I, I know, but the protein is going to... Right. Well, liver, maybe you could just start with like a liver pill. Like maybe those people just need organ pills or something. It's possible. I'm, I'm, I'm open to that, but you know, given that it would be such a small dose, um, and they don't necessarily need to cut out animal for animal protein completely. So if they were going to reduce their animal protein, then increasing the amount of organs relative to muscle meat they were eating, then that would be certainly ideal. But, um, yeah, I mean, we still need, we still need a lot more research on the long term how, how to deal with this, but there's certainly, um, kind of individual things that can be helpful, some of which are uh, herbal <laughs> herbal medications or plant medicines, but that's okay. Um, yeah, and and kind of optimizing nutrient status. Um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to mention that is like if you're if you're like not coming out of the if you're being persistent with carnivore and it's not working for you, that might be one reason why. Um, if you kind of had a tendency towards that. Uh, prior to going carnivore. I think that's great because that's a question that I get a lot. Who is it not for? And I think that evolutionarily, most of us have the enzymatic machinery to utilize the nutrients in animal foods, but this may be one legitimate case where it's like, Hey, if you have a hydrogen sulfide overgrowth, we might have to do something else instead Mm -hmm. for a little while to try and fix that. Ultimately, I would hope that that person could still benefit from the nutrition of organs and meat. And I think it's still a, a real possibility, but getting, figuring out what's at the root of that hydrogen sulfide overgrowth is I think really 
kind of one of the cutting edge questions within gastrointestinal medicine right now. I mean, a lot of these things are still not even recognized widely. And so you'd have to do some special testing to make sure to see if it was a hydrogen sulfide overgrowth, but that's, that's really good. So I think that from my perspective, as a summary for people, I just, I love that we could touch on all these points and show that you probably don't need plant fiber to have quote a healthy gut microbiome. We don't really know what a healthy gut microbiome is. It can look a lot of different ways. There are different types of species within any particular phyla. So it's, it's more about the, like Lucy said, the functionality of these organisms, the ecological niches they occupy. And if you have a disordered gut, you know, figuring out which piece of it is missing. Is it, is it, an inflammatory piece? Is there a pathogen? Are there keystone species that are missing? Are you nutrient deficient? Is your gut lining damaged because of something in the gut? Is Do you not have a certain amount of nutrients? That's, is there something in those inflaming things? Is there a nutrient deficiency? And so putting all that together, it's, it's kind of cool because it means, hey, we can eat a lot of different diets and probably thrive from a GI perspective, just like our ancestors have. You know, the Mongols eating blood and and milk and and meat and and some for a lot of the year the Inuits eating similar diets the the Hadza eating a lot of animal meat and organs and then some fiber and berries and baobab and and having a shift in terms of seasonality in terms of their guts this Italian population really suggesting either a modern Paleolithic diet quote unquote as the authors define it or that lifestyle plays a huge role and that vitamin D as we saw or at least narrow band UV light can play a role here exposure to some of these maybe wild organisms in some way, like the mouse study, whether that's a fermented food or getting in nature or doing hunting. There's a lot of pieces to this equation, but I, I love that we can hopefully explain and really lay it out for people that there are a lot of ways to get a healthy gut that are not 30 different types of plant foods per week and more fiber is not always the answer. As we saw in a lot of people who come in with inflamed guts, more fiber is the opposite of the answer. And in a lot of people, removing fiber in the short term or the long term can be really good. And I think that it's <clears throat> pretty cool to think that humans may not need fiber as we think about it for much of their life at all. You know, maybe honey can substitute, maybe animal tendons can substitute. There's a lot of possibilities here that we're still trying to figure out. But ultimately, it's just, it's fun to be able to think outside the box and think like how wide we can make this and how many different options there are to help people get back to health. So where can people find more of your stuff, Lucy? You've got an amazing blog and you work with people. You've got a course. Where is it all? Yeah, all at lucymailing.com. Okay. So best place to find me is there. Is there a, there's some way to email you there or something? Yeah, yeah. You can email me there. Subscribe to my newsletter for all my updates. I kind of low-key quit social media lately. So um, yeah, website's best place to find me. I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm jealous. <laughs> maybe I will low key quit social media when I go to Africa, but I think I'll probably want to share things that are happening there. Yeah. If I don't get, you know, if I don't get caught in the hippo's mouth or something. We'll try and stay out <laughs> of that problem. Okay. So what is the most radical thing that you have done recently, Lucy Mailing? Oh man. You know, I was ready for this question this time. But <laughs> honestly, the entire year after finishing my PhD was just a crazy whirlwind. So since we moved here to Milwaukee in August, I've just been loving the quiet writing life. But I guess if I can answer more broadly, I'd say the most radical thing was actually letting go of med school and fully embracing independent research. Because honestly, I'm not sure I ever really wanted to go to med school. I just wanted to have a platform and the capacity to help people improve their health. 
And I realized that I could go to med school and spend the next four years learning the standard narrative, or I could spend it immersed in the scientific literature, which is what I love doing. So, um, yeah, hoping to continue finding the undiscovered knowledge that could help shape clinical practice. So we're grateful that you're doing that because having you spend eight more years in medical school and residency would be a loss for all of us. So we get, we get to benefit from your knowledge and your thinking early. And I'll just say that I've appreciated all of our interactions and I can't wait to see the new studies that you'll send me. And I look forward to our next conversation. Awesome. I do too. Thanks, Paul. All right, you guys, thanks for listening to that podcast with Lucy. I really enjoy that conversation. There is so much misinformation out there about what is healthy and what is not. And the fact that ketogenic diets, no fiber diets, do not degrade the gut mucus layer. I love Lucy's takeaway. Don't eat no fiber with sugar. Oh boy, I got to sneeze. Hold on. This is real life. Hold on. Okay, I'm coming back. Sneeze went away. Just kidding. Animal-based diet. You're superhuman. You can destroy a sneeze. That's what I'm talking about. Join us for the Animal-Based 30. Anyway, don't eat sugar without fiber in your diet, but I'm really interested in the prebiotic properties of honey. Uh, When I did that test that I show in the podcast, I was eating meat and organs and fat and honey. I had no fiber, yet my gut diversity was super high. There was no inflammation. All my markers look pretty good on that longevity gut bio test that I show with Lucy. The show notes are at hardensoil.co. Um, there's just so much dogma. There's dogma with LDL. There's dogma with fiber and the gut. Most people tell me they have the best poop of their life on an animal-based diet. And as I talk about Lucy, the major factor here is what is your gut health? What is your inflammation? Is there dysbiosis? And for a lot of people who have inflamed guts, fiber makes it worse. So it's like the Squatty Potty ad, the best poop of your life on a carnivore diet or an animal-based diet, I bet you, I bet you it'll happen. So let me know. Join us for the Animal-Based 30, animalbased30.com. Send me an email, drpaul at heartandsoil.co if you have questions about our supplements, how to construct an animal-based diet. Please support our sponsors, heartandsoil.co. Get some gut indigestion and immune milk. Get healing that gut. Email me if you have questions about how to construct a diet to do it. Get that infographic at animalbased30.com. Helixsleep.com front slash carnivore MD, the most comfortable mattress out there. You'll get a quiz. It's customized to you. Pretty amazing stuff. $200 off, free pillows. Good deal. Helixsleep.com front slash carnivore MD. And LGC, let's get checked. Try LGC.com front slash carnivore MD. Whiteoakpastures.com. Carnivore MD is the code to get the best meat I've ever had, just about. And Belcampo, sometimes give them the run for the money. They're both amazing. Belcampo.com, Carnivore MD, or Carnivore 10 is the code. Love you all. Welcome to 2021. We're going to crush it. Animal Base 30. Love you all. Shoot me an email. I think I said I love you all twice, but I can't tell you I love you all enough. Stay radical. Oh my gosh. I almost forgot to tell the winner. The winner of the review this month is SheCat35. Left a review on December 10th. Said Dr. Paul lays out his ideas and hypotheses very clearly about diet, exercise, etc. Thanks, SheCat. SheCat35, if you're listening to this, shoot me an email, drpaul at hardensoil.co. Get you a signed copy of my book. Thanks to all of you for leaving a review on Apple Podcast. Love you all. Please do that to support the podcast. Okay, now the podcast is really done.